0: Hello, 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 and welcome to Kicking and Streaming, the show where streaming originals and traditional cinema enter the ring
1: for the ultimate showdown. I'm Bo. And I'm Chris. Are streaming originals the TV movies of the 21st century? Is cinema really different from movies? Is Netflix the future? These questions and more on. Kicking and streaming. Kick, kicking and. You, you, need, you, need
0: say, you need to say it with me.
1: No, I thought you Okay, okay, hold on. Kicking
0: and. Hold on. No, no. Okay. Okay. At the same time. Okay. 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 One, two. Kicking and streaming. Okay. No. Here. No, okay. Here. I'll, I'll count you in.
1: Hey everybody, welcome back to Kicking and Streaming, or should I say, Streaming and Kicking. You're probably wondering why I say that. The reason is, this is a very special episode of Kicking and Streaming, in which we are doing the Criterion film first. Uh, now, Actually, now that I think about it, that, I mean, calling it Streaming and Kicking, that would actually mean that the Streaming original is first, which it usually is, so I don't know how that would really... I mean, the Criterion... Oh, for
0: a muse of fire oh. that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention. A kingdom for a stage, princes to act, and monarchs to behold the swelling scene. My. Then should the warlike Harry, like himself, assume the port of Mars, and at his heels, leashed in like hounds, should famine sword and fire crouch for employment. Merciful heavens. But pardon. And gentles all, the flat, unraised spirits that have dared on this unworthy episode to bring forth so great an object. My. Can this microphone hold the vasty fields of France? Or may we cram within these earbuds the very casks that did affright the air at Agincourt? Oh, pardon, since a crooked shout may attest in little place a million. And let us ciphers to this great accompte on your imaginary forces' work. Suppose within the girdle of your ears are now confined two mighty monarchies, whose high upreared and abutting fronts the perilous narrow ocean parts asunder. Peace out our imperfections with... Your thoughts into a thousand parts divide on man and make imaginary puissance. Think when we talk of horses that you see them, printing their hooves in the receiving earth, for 'tis your thoughts that now must deck our kings, carry them here and there, jumping o'er times, turning the accomplishment of many years into an hourglass, for the which supply admit us chorus to this history, who. Prologue-like, your humble patience ask, gently to hear, kindly to judge, our podcast.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Beautiful, Beau, beautiful. Hey, uh, uh, tell us how you really feel. Am I right? <laughs> no, uh, hey, this is actually good. This is a good litmus test for, for Shakespeare. If uh, If our listeners joined in and they heard that and they were like... They they, they, were, they were like, what's he even saying? Then you should go study up on some Shakespeare and then come back to this episode because we're about to get all Shakespearean up in here.
0: Yeah, this is a double Shakespeare episode. And my intro also serves to reemphasize the highbrow, lowbrow nature of this relationship. Who's the highbrow? <laughs> who's the lowbrow? Well, stay tuned. We'll let you decide, listener.
1: <laughs> Watch me run circles around Bo on Shakespeare today. Uh, so there's so there's a reason that we are uh doing a criterion film first and it's a very very special reason perhaps for the first time ever when we say this is a very special episode we actually uh, really truly mean it uh we have a, a special guest with us who helped pick this film and the film that she picked was chimes at midnight which was an Orson Welles film. It's an adaptation of Shakespeare, a very clever adaptation of Shakespeare, I might add. So since that was the Criterion film, uh, we we watched it and picked a streaming response. We'll incorporate our guest into the show here in just a bit. But to kind of give you a little bit of background on the film that our guest chose. So Chimes at Midnight follows the story of Shakespeare's beloved character named Sir John Falstaff, who is a character that is carried across multiple Shakespearean plays. He's actually prominently featured in a a tetralogy of sorts called The Henriad, which is the story of King Henry V, King Henry IV, and kind of the, 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 the family drama in this monarchy. And it's kind of this sprawling epic. What Orson Welles has done, he's taken... Sir John Falstaff's story, as we know it from each of these plays, and he's tied all the appearances together into a single story, kind of binding all the stories together through the one current of Falstaff. So Falstaff is a recurring character in these plays and a close friend of King Henry IV's son, Prince Hal. So the film focus is obviously primarily on Falstaff himself. But Orson Welles was really taken with this guy. He was very fond of the character, and so he wanted to he wanted to do him justice with a with a full film all his own. With this film, we we open on some uh, some turmoil in the country. Uh, the the king is is kind of in the midst of a feud with some other clans and families, and there's a lot there's a potential war broiling. Uh, but we we soon pivot back over to Falstaff and Hal. We're introduced to these two characters who are living a life of crime, drunkenness, and debauchery. They're partying all the livelong day and just having a gay old time, but Hal, he clearly knows that it can't last forever. He knows that the time will come soon when he's going to have to man up and sort himself out and eventually take up the mantle of, of King. We witness over the course of the story a handful of silly misadventures between Hal, Falstaff, and their little band of rapscallions uh, intercut with and soon overcome by a more serious matter of the civil war in England. They kind of begin to interlink and eventually one overtakes the other and and the the socio-political situation in England kind of becomes the centerpiece of the story driving Falstaff and Hal's story along and we follow this these events and the responsibility that they demand of Hal and so over the course of the story we basically witness mainly through the eyes of Falstaff Hal kind of growing into the man he needs to be and in the process sort of outgrowing his friends it's a really interesting story i myself am uh I'm, I'm, I'm casually familiar with Shakespeare. I've acted in a little bit of Shakespeare. I've watched some Shakespeare plays and films and stuff. I still have to watch a play or read a play or watch a movie at least twice to understand what everybody's talking about. So I'm, I'm, I'm the dog that begs for scraps at the Shakespeare table. I, I, I'm still trying to find my footing in that world of, of, of high dialogue. But uh, – <laughs> Yeah, this was a a really great film. I'm excited to get into it. But first, um, we should explain why we picked this film. And that takes us to our special guest, Bo.
0: Yeah, very happily, we were able to connect with the wonderful and the wonderfully generous Beatrice Wells. She is the reason why we're reviewing this film, this set of films. Beatrice Wells is the daughter of of Orson Welles. Mm-hmm. Orson Welles and the countess and actress who went by the name of Paola Mori. Mm-hmm. So Beatrice is an activist. She's done work in fashion design. She also manages the Welles estate. And crucially, she is an actress in Chimes at Midnight, mm-hmm. playing the page to Sir John Falstaff, her father's character. Chris wasn't able to be there, but I sat down with Beatrice a couple of days ago, and we had a chat about this film and about her father, and I think you're going to enjoy it, so listen up. I'm afraid I'm going to open up with some, you know, a lot of the questions that you've had a million times. <laughs> but, That's fine. Don't worry. Good. At least I'll know the answer. Okay. <laughs> So, so yeah, the we're talking about, about chimes at midnight. So I just want to open with the very standard question of what memories do you have of the production, you know, what it was like to be directed by your father, anything to do with that time itself?
2: Oh, it was uh... – It was a wonderful time because it was a wonderful set. In other words, it it was a happy movie. I don't think there was a person who was working on that movie, be it behind or in front of the camera that didn't have literally a blast. I just remember it was not just because I was a child. I mean, everybody just was having such a good time because it was a movie that he loved so much. So, you know, he was in a good mood about it, you know, so it was, it was fabulous. And I, obviously have been on other sets with him and I just remember this as a joyous time. I mean it was fun. It was just a fun movie, even though you know it was done on a shoestring like most of his movies. <laughs> uh so there was a lot of fun things that were going on because of that. You know, let's see how can we make, you know, twenty people look like a hundred and that kind right. of thing. <laughs> but no it was lovely it was lovely and the people were lovely i mean the actors were lovely but there was some wonderful stage actors you know like margaret rutherford played uh mistress quickly and uh you know I, I, and i'll never forget i, I tell you an instance that margaret had we were it was freezing i remember because we started shooting in november in uh in madrid and madrid is incredibly cold in the winter people mm. think it's a mild it's not at all i mean it's just god it's that cold that goes through your bones and we were sitting waiting to do a scene together and it was so cold and we were going over the script and somebody came over and said Margaret, you want you know? Would you like some some coffee or some tea or something to warm up? She said, "Oh, she said I'm not cold. The sun is shining. He is here." And she was talking about my father. <laughs> And I'll never forget that. It was such a beautiful thing to say. And she meant it, you know what I mean? Yeah. It was not you know, it was just she was just enjoying this so much. It was wonderful. So that's the you know, that's the biggest memory I have of that is just the the joy that it was to make it and how everybody enjoyed being in it and around it and part of
0: it. Thinking about you know, filming in in Madrid and the cold, which I mean they're numerous times throughout the film where you can see an actor's breath
3: right because of the
0: because of the chill but the yes. lo- the location is is so integral to the the story and the way the way that orson shot it is i, I don't i i think of i read somewhere someone talking about how strange it was that an american director. In Spain, shot one of the most English movies of all time, <laughs> but he really does capture, you know, the the whole Shakespearean spirit and Mary England yes, and the does. rest. Yes,
2: it I mean, you know, the, I mean, he shot. You know, there's a lot of shots outside of Avila, which is about a two-hour drive, I think, from Madrid, north of Madrid, and that's that. When you see the big long wall, you know, um, yeah, that you know, and that exists, and that it's just so perfect for that. And then, in, you know, he shot. Uh, most of sir john's uh part of uh, you know sir john Gilgood, who played henry the fourth
0: yes it was done in that cathedral and i i'm trying to remember the place it was because uh, there's so many cathedrals in spain
2: yeah. um oh my god where was it? i'm sorry i think Oviedo, if i'm not mistaken but i'm probably mistaken about that but that was in this beautiful cathedral and again there we were all freezing to death <laughs> It happens on many movie sets, trust me, not just on awesome, well, <laughs> low budget movies, trust me, big budget movies, you freeze to death as
0: well. <laughs> yeah, you know, you were talking about how, how happy everyone was on the on the set. And certainly, I mean, it was such a, a passion project from everything I understand, you know, that um, had been years coming. But but yes, it was it was plagued by money troubles and famously by sound issues. Much of which has been cleaned up, in the completely,
2: yes. yeah, you know, No, no, admit, Criterion, you know, Janice Criterion, right. Have done an incredible. Oh, job. it's beautiful. I mean, we yeah, you know, Keith Baxter, who played uh, Prince Hal, yes, yeah. I've known since I was four years old because he was he was on stage doing the chimes because we did chimes in in Dublin, you know, first it was mm-hmm. called. the the fall stuff i think he didn't call it chimes of midnight and uh, keith you know played prince hal there and uh, keith and i saw it when when it first came out chimes uh the restoration which was i think five years ago when they did it i think it was 2015 or maybe 2016 four years um we went to new york and they had a, a showing at the wow here we go here's the (laughs) <laughs> scene a all moment i can't remember the name of the the new york something or other I'm t- <laughs> i apologize i can't remember it anyway we went and we both sat and we watched it and we said my god this is the first time we've heard literally like a whole scene you know what i mean that we had we had never heard before because the sound was so bad yeah <laughs> which is just incredible so they've done an amazing job i mean it's you can actually watch it now and really see see it properly i think it was so plagued by sound issues that it was almost hard to watch in the past you know i'm going back you know 20 30 years
0: yeah well i mean i remember reading a a review from roger ebert uh, where and he had seen it you know before the the restoration and he was still praising its genius but talking about how how plagued it was with these sound issues so it's incredible right. to watch it on on criterion now and i can hear every word
2: yeah it's it's absolutely and really they've done an incredible job and my father would have been so pleased about that you know because he loved that movie so much um it was his he always said you know that was the movie he if ever there was a movie he should be remembered by he wanted it to be times of midnight yeah
0: i've know. heard him say that and also uh that it was yeah the movie that he felt was the closest to what he'd envisioned like the getting his what he wanted on the screen
2: right right so yeah so it was really you know there was a a real passion uh, you know involved in the whole process you know and after they as i was in it on on stage and dubbed and i had it I didn't even have a part. I was just brought, I was four and a half or five, I think. I was brought on stage and had to wave at the end of the, and say, (laughs) Hail the King. That was my big line. Um, You know, so, but after he did that, you know, there was no plan really to make a movie. But after he did it, he decided that yes, it could be made into a movie. And then he started really working on putting, you know the the five plays those five Shakespearean plays yeah. into a 90 minute movie you know it's pretty extraordinary
0: <laughs> it really is and it's it's incredible that it was you know, i mean obviously it's coming from those Shakespearean plays but it's incredible that it was conceived as a stage play initially just because it's it's so cinematic it's so purely cinematic oh. when oh, i watched it this scene? time yeah the yeah. the battle, battle scene. scene yeah oh.
2: That battle scene—it just is incredible, you know. It's incredible, and, and and so many people have said, you know, that they had never would have never been able to make, you know, their movies had they not seen had they not seen that battle scene of Chimes of Midnight. And Kenneth Branagh said that about his Henry the, the fifth that he did. Um, what's his name? Uh, I'm really going to having a senile day today. Mel Gibson, thank you. Right. Uh, Braveheart, he said the same thing. He would never have been able to do Braveheart had he not seen Chimes at Midnight. And I believe there was a third one, I can't remember who. But, you know, so it's a pretty important, just that alone, that battle scene's a pretty important sort of part of cinema in a way.
0: And I, I was struck, uh, I watched it again th- this morning. of Seen it several times Not before. Oh, lovely!
2: I must watch it again. Yes, <laughs> I have it <laughs> I have to watch it.
0: And what I was thinking as I watched it is, you know, as as beautiful as the restored sound is, and as wonderful as the Shakespearean language is, it just struck me this time that I I could watch this on mute. And I would understand the emotional beats and everything that happens. It's it's almost – it's so cinematic that it could be a silent film and you would still follow everything that's going on.
2: How lovely. What a lovely thing to say. God, that's so – I think that's lovely and I think it's true and I know my father would just love to hear that because, <laughs> you know, yeah, well, he would. <laughs> You know his movies were his babies. My God, they were so important to him, and he only made so few. You know, if you think about yeah. it, yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. I would get blown away if I, you know, you realize how few movies he made, and uh, you know how important he is to the history of movies.
0: It it is it it's remarkable. I mean, it, you know, I, on that, I'm. I'll, I'll skip to something I had here just because I was sure. I was thinking about this. I read a book. Uh, by Gary Giddens called Warning Shadows in which he talks about about chimes at midnight and he talks oh. about something that that comes up with with your father often and that's this idea you know of of what happened after you know he makes he makes citizen kane and then what what happened after i'm just going to read this this paragraph real quick so he says uh, from here is the crux of the wells conundrum boiled down to one question which is the more impressive feat A gifted young man is given a film studio, its technicians, and almost unlimited funds to make any movie he desires, and he comes up with Citizen Kane. A mature, experienced, stubbornly individual artist in middle age, working with little more than rent money and spit, makes chimes at midnight. The first film revolutionized cinema, yet merely hints at the sublimity of his later work. The question implies... Well, the Wells debate has shifted ground. It used to center on the cause of his decline. Was it the fault of Wells, the stars, the system? Now the decline itself is in question.
2: Mm, what a lovely piece. I must get this book. Could, yeah. Lovely. What a lovely thing to say. What a, and I believe truthful, you know. But if I would, of course. But <laughs> it, you
4: know, yeah. But, it,
2: yeah, it, no, it's amazing, you know, that after all this time, you know, people are writing, I don't know when this book came out, is it a long time ago? Are
0: no, this heard? is a recent book. Yeah, this is, oh, uh, it is. Yeah, oh, this, wow. this is oh, recent. God. And and wow. that's how I mean, it really captures oh, how I feel about it as well because um I mean, of course, as someone who loves movies, I, I love Citizen Kane. It's a it's a magnificent Gosh. film.
2: Oh, it's incredible. I, you know, I don't I was brought up to <laughs> Hate it because my father, you know, we did not talk about. Which it. is it not one of the things that we had long discussions about. We did, but not, you know. He he really didn't want to. So I was brought was brought up to not really like Kane even though of course I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it took me, you know, a long time after he died, probably ten fifteen years, and I. Watched it and I thought, oh my god, this movie! And I have watched it, you know, I, I've lost count how many times I've watched it. And every time I watch it, I've, there's something in that movie that I have missed, which is unbelievable. You yeah. know, it's just extraordinary and has, you know, well, anyway, we know that. But it's, as I said, it's something that we would not talk much about at home.
0: It was hard, I, I suppose, to have that dogging him you know the success of that film and then the friction no, it
2: wasn't just the success it was everything that came after it you know what i mean what he went through to save the the movie he almost lost it you know it was almost burnt we all know that story you know then the tragedy of magnificent ambersons that really destroyed him that it's all sort of tied in together you know, um, and so it's a period of his life that he could do no wrong. I mean, you know, he arrived, this young man, thought he was 23, when he started Citizen K. That's, you know, <laughs> That's incredible. Know he, was 25. he was 23 when he started it. Um, and he could do no wrong.
3: My, my love for films began only when we started work. What I'd like to know is, where did you get the confidence from to make ignorance. a film with such... Ignorance, sheer ignorance, you know, there's no confidence to equal it. It's only when you know something about a profession, I think, that you're timid or careful. Or How does ignorance show itself? I thought you could do anything with a camera that the eye could do or the imagination could do.
2: Just he got, you know, this incredible contracts that he, you know, he had complete control. I mean, you know, having had these huge successes, in New York, on stage and on radio, you know, I mean, he was just couldn't, he was the golden boy. They called him that. So, you know, to have all that high, high, high and wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And then for it just to be destroyed in such a short period of time, you know, so it was the whole package was Kane. It wasn't just that movie. It was the whole period and you know and then all this hatred and everything else that went with it
0: sort of what it represented i guess yes
2: exactly exactly so it's not just that movie it was just the whole thing i think he was very proud of kane in the end you know how could he not be but it was just a period of his life that you know was was very hard for him and my father never looked back I mean, never. And I think that's how he succeeded in staying sane and being able to continue to make movies despite everything that he went through. He just never looked back. He never, never did. And it's it's an enormous gift to have that, to be able to do that in life, whatever you're doing, you know, but especially artistically, I think.
4: Yeah. So yeah. sorry,
2: we went off into Citizen Kane, a whole different <laughs> discussion. We were discussing Chimes, which is his favorite movie, and it is a wonderful movie. And I think it is absolutely as watchable as, as Kane is since the Restoration. I think you're absolutely right yeah. that you can look at it, you know. It, it, the Shakespeare almost leaves, which is what scares so many people from watching it. You know, that's the problem with it. Because a lot of people do not want to see a black and white Shakespearean movie. Right. You know. But then you say, but, you know, it's not, you know, watch it. And then they watch it and they go, oh, my God, you know, it's <laughs> so
1: much more.
0: <laughs> well, not to get into picking apart other people's work, but I think that what Orson was able to do with Shakespeare was always incredible each time, you know, with oh, yeah. Othello and yeah. Chimes and Macbeth. Yeah. I yeah, think that, I mean,
2: Othello was extraordinary. I mean, yeah. visually, Othello was, what I think, one of the most beautiful things. Apart from maybe Don Quixote, but we never saw it really the way it should have been. But visually, I think Othello was just, oh, my God. It was mind-boggling. It was so beautiful.
0: Yeah, they're, they're stunning. And I don't know, it's – you know, I have the that recent portfolio of – your father's drawings; it was published uh, last right. year or whenever yes. it was. Yes, yes. Yeah, and and they're beautiful to look at. But you can going through it, you mm-hmm. can just see the way that, and just the I, the graphic vision of his mind, and the way that certainly related to Shakespeare, which yeah has a has a problem of being really confined to the stage. You know, I feel like, um, not not to get too sycophantic, but I just feel like if you know if i could bring shakespeare and show him one iteration of his plays it would certainly be one of one of orson's movies because he he captured not only the language you know with the with the actors and the directing and with his acting himself but just the passion and the excitement and the drama in the images it's really i think the you know the best way to to carry something from the stage to the screen
2: Yes. Yes, I agree. And, you know, I was as you were saying that I was just thinking, you know, what a wonderful way to to introduce people to Shakespeare, you know, because nowadays, I mean, apart from, you know, very few, at least in this country, you know, England, they still study Shakespeare. But, you know, we don't. Americans don't. Um, You know, I can't imagine saying to a 13 year old today, you know, what? What are Shakespeare's plays? Or maybe (laughs) one Shakespeare play. I don't think, I think they'd probably say who's Shakespeare. You know what I mean? Um, So, which is a pity. But what a wonderful way to introduce, you know, somebody to Shakespeare with Chimes or Othello or even Macbeth, you know. Right. Very, very viewable, very understandable, you know. That's how I look at it. Apart from all the cinematic and wonderful things in it, they're just very easy you know, to to watch if that's what is the right word. I don't know if it is or not. You know what I mean? But
0: yeah, well, I agree with you. Yeah, I think that they're, again, they're they're so visually driven and everything is presented there so that I I think it lets you sort of soak into the antiquated dialogue in a different way because you've got so much context there that, you know, you you may not get on the stage or certainly not by
4: just reading the book.
2: Exactly. Exactly. It's uh, you know, it's yeah, it's amazing. But you know, you you're mentioning the book um on on his art and yeah. obviously you know Marx. Cousins' wonderful documentary that he did. The
0: Eyes of Orson Welles. Yes.
2: Yes. I mean, you know, when you see those for the first time, either the book or the movie or both, you suddenly realize that, you know, this man was a painter, first of all. And that's why, you know, because some of these shots in some of his movies are just, you know, they they take your breath away. They're so beautiful. Because he was a painter, you know. I mean, that was his... And it just kind of all fell into place, I thought, after you know, those two things came out, you know, that he understood more about where, you know, that visual of his came from. You know what I yeah. mean? It's, yeah. So I think they're very important. I think his art is very important in in anybody who is interested in Orson Welles. Do you know what I mean? In studying him or knowing yeah. more about him, I think that having that book and having Mark's wonderful movie to, to watch is, is is an eye-opener. It's just another side of him that also helps put the jigsaw puzzle together, you know, a little easier. I agree. Yeah, I'm glad that's done. You know, I'm glad they're out there too. Yes.
0: Yeah, I have it uh, sitting on my shelf, and I love to look through it.
2: Wonderful, Bob. So
0: glad. A lot has been said about the way that the way that your father related to the character of Falstaff, and maybe saw himself as Falstaff. What do you what do you make of all that? Do you think that the character of Falstaff was was quite like your father? Do you think? What do you what do you think of that?
2: No, <laughs> I don't think he was as nice as Falstaff. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm joking. No, I you know I think he. I don't think he ever saw himself as Falstaff. That's been you know other people's view, which is fine. I don't think it's you know that off. But it, it, more than anything, Falstaff for him represented a period in the world during a time that it was the Merry Old England, which was a very joyous, wonderful time. I mean, forget about all the diseases and all the things <laughs> that everybody had. We know that. But it was a it was a it was the end. After that it really was the end of that Merry Old England, which, you know, was Shakespeare and everything else, but Shakespeare represented at least to him and Falstaff to him represented that time and that joy. And that, you know, there was, it, it was called Merry old England for a reason. You know what I mean? It wasn't just called Merry old England because somebody said, Oh, that sounds good. You know, right. it was, it really was. So that's, that I think more than anything, I, I don't think he saw himself as Falstaff and I really don't, you know, he, the, He's no, I mean, he was maybe, yes, he was betrayed by friends, certainly not. You know, this is, seems much more a son father relationship, you know, yeah. a false laugh and Prince Hal than than a friendship between, a, a, you know, just friends. It's more of it to me. It's always been. And I think my father was meant to be, you know, much more of a son father, than father that, you know, Hal never had. But, you know, yes, my father was betrayed by friends many, many times in life. Like, I think we all are. You know, it's not that's not unique to my father. So that part of it could be true. But really, uh, no, I I don't think there's anything at all of my father in in Falstaff, apart from just a great love for the character and the innocence. You know, Falstaff, in a way, was kind of innocent. You know, my father wasn't innocent.
0: (laughs) Okay. Uh, uh, this is a, a kind of a side note question, but uh, y- you had an international upbringing, and I'm not sure what your accent was like at the time of filming Chimes at Midnight. But uh what what was the Were you learning an English accent for the part, or how did that? No,
2: no, I was dubbed. I was dubbed. Oh, okay. Yeah, you were dubbed. to dub everybody anyway, and I was yeah. obsessed with dubbing. No, no, I was dubbed because also I sounded too female, you know, because I, I was playing a part of a of a boy and to my horror you know all my i had my hair i was like <laughs> I was 10, I just turned 10 when we started filming it, and I you know, I had long hair, and I was you know, thinking I was feminine you start, you know, at 10, a little girl starts to think of so and suddenly all my hair was chopped off badly you know what I mean, to look as if it was during that period, and it was it was kind of traumatic for me, I remember because, you know, living in Spain my, my friends were all these gorgeous little Spanish girls with long beautiful hair, and here I was, you know, always six inches is taller than anybody else, looking like a boy.
4: <laughs> yeah, <know? laughs> yeah. Oh, that's
2: funny. But okay. No, I was dubbed. I was dubbed because I really not because of an accent more than anything else. Um, it's because I I really was sounded too female. I I don't know what language or what kind of accent I had growing up because I I certainly didn't have an American one that came after I moved here to the states in in the late seventies. Uh, I never had an American accent. I had an English accent, actually, in English. So I don't know, though, at the age of 10, what kind of accent I
0: had. (laughs) Okay. It wasn't
2: American. I never had an
0: American accent. I knew that – I didn't know that that you had been dubbed, but I I knew that – well, there was a lot of dubbing in that film. And that I know that in some cases – Orson was dubbing other actors because of the oh, sound yes, issues. Yes, yeah.
2: He play, um I'm s I don't remember the name of the character, but it's Sandro Tasca who plays the Archbishop. Do you remember the Archbishop? Oh, yes. Yeah, that's my father. That's my father speaking. <laughs> okay. I yeah. Dubbed him. I know he dubbed him, I remember. And I think, I don't know who valga Chiari, I think, was too, was the Italian actor. I don't remember the name of the part with the pig. you remember who's was? Also, oh, yes. Uh, yeah, the... Uh,
0: with the the stutter or stutter yeah, yeah
2: exactly, yeah,
3: we shall be married now, now comes in
2: the sweet of the night that was uh he's a very famous Italian actor about there, who came to do it for basically nothing my mother he my mother and knew them because my mother was a, an actress at the very beginning, mm-hmm. um never wanting to be an actress, but it was the only way to get out of the house then in the early fifties. You know, in Italy after the war, there wasn't much for you to do. So she became an actress. And she knew Walter from then. So they were, like, really close friends. And my father met him and thought how wonderful he would be in that part, which he kind of, you know, made around Walter. Because Walter was a a comedian, you know, he was a comedic actor.
4: Right.
2: Yeah, so there's always, in that movie, there's so many people that were just, you know, it, my God, even we have even Edmond Richard, who was the, you know, the uh, photographer, the cinematographer, is in the movie suddenly playing some part. <laughs> <laughs> well, because short of money? You know, it's like, oh, my God, who's going to play this part for yeah. you? It's just a, a walk-on with five words or whatever it is. But we had notes of Edmond Richard, the cinematographer, was like, <laughs> you know, dressed up and boom, there he went.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. It, it really is remarkable. As as gifted as Orson was at the beginning of his film career and even before, it just seems to me that you you couldn't have made this movie look as beautiful of, as it does without, you know, a career in cinema with I so little money. I I, yes. Yeah. yes,
2: absolutely. This is not this. I don't think he could have come up with this, despite all his talent at 23, 24, you know, Um I don't think so. I think this is a an older man, a middle aged man, whatever he was. No, he wasn't that old. He was what forty five, forty seven, forty eight when he started. Because he was forty when I was born. So yeah, he was fifty. Yes, I guess he was a middle aged man starting no. at middle age when he started making it. So yes, I agree entirely. I, I it's, it's certainly a work of someone who's who's done a few movies before. And yeah. that's why I think it's turned out so well. It's such a wonderful movie. I am going to watch it again. Thank you for but making me talk about it. I, you know, you forget about things. You don't. I have it. You know, streamed, bought on some whatever streaming channel. And yeah. I keep on forgetting that I have it, so I'm, I need to watch it again. It's time.
0: It's you know, it's a wonderful film, and I love talking about it because I I like uh, pointing a finger at it. I think it's a film that's. Too often lost in you know in the in the conversation of, uh, I don't know. I think people probably talk mostly about you know Citizen Kane and then after that maybe uh, Touch of Evil.
2: Right. Exactly. Exactly.
0: And it's yeah. such a a beautiful film and something that I think uh, well not only useful for you know studying Shakespeare or simply for getting lost in the the emotions and the images, but also for such an important movie to to the history of film like we were talking about the battle right. scene and uh, right. so many right. of the editing you know tricks, I guess we could say, that were used. Um, yes, yes,
2: yeah. my God. I know, exactly, sort of moving that famous scene where, where, where all the soldiers are, have those long spears, and it was when Prince Hal, I think is in the cathedral, if I'm not mistaken, when he's walking up to see Sir John, and we didn't have enough people to fill both sides, so he, you know this story, right? So he flipped it, the negative over in the cutting room, so there was... Basic. So basically, there was let's say forty, you know, soldiers yeah. on the left side as Keith was walking up, and then in the editing room he just flipped the negative over so he had them on the other side as well.
0: <laughs> right. Doing do, you know coming up on the on the fly as it were with things that yes. they they now do with CG. Yeah.
2: Yeah, but you know, I I I believe that especially in artistic ways that when you have to, you know, really. Event things, you are at your best because it's very easy to do something and it's all there. You know what yeah. I mean. And I'm not knocking anybody and in any way, but I'm just saying. I just think it's when you have a challenge and you really don't know what to do, and you have no money and what are you going to do? You come up you, your best work. I think your best work comes out that way. You know.
0: I think there's a lot of truth in that. The having to overcome those challenges you know, having the passion for the story and then...
2: Right, exactly. Exact, exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah, totally, totally. And he certainly did, you know, especially that one. He just loved it so much. And, you know, it was, I mean, it was a huge success in Cannes. It gave, they gave him a special award for it. I can't remember what. Um, It didn't win the Palme d'Or, but it won, you know, some special award. they They loved it. I mean, it was... You know, a huge success. But again, I, you know, this is 1960. I think it came out in 65 or 66, maybe. Um, I think it was at the Cannes Film Festival in 65. And so, you know, who's going to go see in 1965 a black and white Shakespeare movie? Nope, nobody.
4: Yeah.
2: You know, I mean, it's just that's you know, it's Spain. You know, a few people saw it because it was shot there, and all you know, everything, and everybody recognized the places, but. It ends there, you know. Black and white Shakespearean movies aren't weren't. They might be today. Watched more, I don't know, depending on you know the budget.
4: <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, and who yeah. puts it out and who's in it? That's the that's the secret. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, that's the other thing. I mean, there was really nobody in that movie apart from my father and maybe Jean Moreau, who were really well known. So John is a is a wasn't a well known movie actor in 1965 you know in america i mean so john right after it became that after arthur i believe you know yeah people knew about him as a, who were into theater
5: yeah, there that makes me sad and makes me sin in envy that my lord northumberland should be the father to so blessed a son
2: so john really didn't do much movies you know he really didn't. He was a theater actor, so there weren't any big names to to at least for this country in 1965. Plus, you throw a black and white movie, and black and white was so out in the 60s, you know. And you throw in Shakespeare; it's it's like whoa, <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, you
2: know, it's not going to be a commercial success, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, I think you have to. Have- have had the vision and passion that he did in order to, mm-hmm. to go and through and with God it. And I thank he
2: did, you know. Thank God he did. Thank God he did have this, this passion and, and, yeah, absolutely. and want to make things like Chimes, like Othello, like so many, you know. They're just, really, thank God he did. No matter what, he was going to make it. I'm just sorry that he never got to make Lear, which is really what he was. I mean, he did on stage, but he was really working on making a Lear for either TV or... A movie before he died that was his yeah. that's what he was working on. everything thinks he that he was working on the wind it's not true at all he you know he gave up a wind a long time before he died. now he was passionate about Lear and he thought that maybe there was a possibility that it could it would happen, but you know he died and it never did that that was his that would have been his swan song would have been Lear
0: yeah, and one can and, only and, imagine. Um, Yes, exactly. One can only imagine. <laughs> Pity that there you go. Well, uh, I to, yeah, Thank you so much for for coming on. I don't want to take more of your time. I have one more question. Sure. This uh, our podcast, kicking and streaming, is sort of comparing the the cinema experience or traditional, you know, theatrical movies with home viewing and streaming. Uh, obviously orson never saw streaming but do you know no, what his thoughts okay. were on vhs or, or or tv or any
2: of that oh, anything, anything anything new he was fascinated by hmm. uh you know I, 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 absolutely anything new i mean it's such a pity that you know he didn't last a little bit longer because you know the 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 advances in i'm not even talking about today just when he you know 10 years after he died i mean were yeah. extraordinary in movies i mean he would have just loved it all of it you know he would have he would have he would have absolutely loved it dear, because he was fascinated by anything that could make it, uh, something better you know what i mean which my god today i mean you know it's incredible what can be done in a, <laughs> by making a movie you know No, he would have loved it. He would have absolutely loved it. It's a pity. It's a great pity. And who knows what he would have done with it. Yeah. (laughs) You know, (laughs) it's just a little bit before his time. He really was. He should have been born perhaps in the 50s, you know. He would have been an amazing, amazing what he would have done today, you know.
0: I think that's right.
2: Yeah. That. He was there at that time for a reason, because he's made a difference to many, you know, in the way they make movies. He's still studied today. and
0: you know, oh, Absolutely. Still so, cited uh, by so many as their know, inspiration.
2: You know, and I, I read somewhere or somebody told me that there, he is the person in movies that there's more books written about than anybody else. Did you know that? I didn't know that. That blew me away. I yeah. mean, that's my father. You know, I have to right. you know, I have to separate myself from sure. like you know Yeah, I guess you would I can't think of him in my mind. No, I don't. I don't think of it. I have to step back and look at him as this great, you know, this really great director, this great movie maker, artist, whatever you want to call him. But it was like I couldn't believe it. He is still the most there are more books written about Orson Welles. Every year, I don't know how many new books come out about Orson Welles. I mean, it's so mind-boggling.
0: Yeah, there's still you know, it's still it's documentaries dead. and it's books. and, and what, yeah.
2: 30, he, he, he died in 1985, so that's my God. You know, right. It's incredible.
0: There's even the movie coming to Netflix next month, I think, yeah, about that's Citizen right. Right. Yes, yeah, the Manc, Manc yeah. about
2: Mankiewicz, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, no, it never ends, it never ends, it's extraordinary, you know you and it, it, here in a sad way in America, people don't really know who he is, you know i Cause it happens to me because you know i say something or and i say orson wells and some people say oh yes and other people look at me and they say i know that name and then i say it's the man who made citizen kane and they go oh I, yes okay then i know wow so he would hate that but that's you know that's how it's become or they've never heard of him at all and europe though france england spain italy you say orson welles to anybody and they go oh my god you know hmm. which is so strange you know because he was an american yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we are you know we live in our social media fast whatever world that we can't we can't look back anymore we just move forward
0: and it, it's true and i guess the the biggest advantage is that now you know with the well with what the releases that Criterion has done and also on the Criterion channel that these movies are so much easier to see than ever they were before so
2: right which is wonderful you yeah. know that is wonderful it really is i'm so glad they have so glad i I really love criteria and I think they've done an incredible job with a lot of artists you know oh, I agree. that we would never have heard about or we would never see or we would you know what I mean want to see and would' know where if you know if you were interested and they've they've made it all very accessible and i I think they're very I think they're brilliant at what they do I really do
0: absolutely.
1: All right. so that was a really fun listen, and I am filled with regret that I wasn't able to be there because she she genuinely seems like the kindest and most intelligent person. Very gracious. She she's one of those people who who really what's the phrase knows how to. I agree. Yeah, she knows how to take a compliment. Um, yeah, th- it was really, really fun to hear her insights. So, some of it almost felt like being transported there when she talks about how how much of a joy it was to be on the set, and she talks about the relationships she had with the different actors and the crew. And it, it's funny because you know you, when you think of making a, a film about Shakespeare, you don't really consider it being. I don't necessarily immediately think of it as like, "We, this is fun. We're having a fun time making this movie," even though it is kind of a comedy drama. But w- wait a second, wait a second, Chris. Yeah.
0: Now, is, is this a is this some kind of Jab, earlier this year I directed you in a Shakespeare production. Oh no! And you're telling me that you can't imagine <laughs> putting on a Shakespeare production being a fun experience.
1: <laughs> well, now Sibo, there's there's we. This is fun, and then there's hmm. This is fun, and uh, the, I see the okay. the, temp, the tempest right, well. is somewhere in the middle there. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, pray continue. <laughs> I do it again. No, it was it, it was really, really cool to hear it from her perspective because I don't know, the, the film has an almost mythic quality to it for me, where it's hard to imagine even being there in the first place. So her her insights were were really, really cool. It's kind of crazy to me, uh you mentioned to her that I, I did not know this myself, that it was originally conceived of as a stage play rather than a film. Yeah. And I agree with you completely. The the, the pacing and the editing and the way that the film format is used, it's I mean there, are, there are multiple moments where I kind of imagined, you know. Obviously, it's based on Shakespeare, so it's all kind of rooted in theater. There were, there were several scenes the way that they were executed where I was just trying to imagine how it would look on a stage, and I couldn't. So that's, I guess, that's a testament to the execution.
0: I, I think it shows us as well how torn orson was between this the stage and film His, his first wife told him once that that he would be miserable if he left the stage and he said sometimes later in life that he thought perhaps that was true that he if he would have stuck with the the stage he would have he would have been happier but he said that he he fell in love with film and he said that film is is a jealous mistress and he he loves his girl
1: it's interesting that his his relationship with with film in general was fascinating to hear about from her. Um, one of the things specifically, she and you you guys briefly touched on Citizen Kane, and I was really surprised to hear that he I guess he didn't I mean she clarifies he didn't he didn't hate the film. He's proud of what he did, but Kind of becoming synonymous with it and having it be known as, you know, the Orson Welles thing that Orson Welles did, and Orson Welles did nothing else kind of thing. I I, I mean, thinking about it in hindsight, I can totally understand it. There was – it, it was interesting to me because she said it wasn't even necessarily the film itself. Because you, you mentioned maybe it could have been the success that was kind of can't get that he can't get that from under its shadow in a way. But she mentioned something that mm-hmm. I thought that really resonated with me, which was she said it, it wasn't even necessarily the film itself as much as it was what it represented about that time in his life with all the stuff he went through. With I, I think the film almost got burned. There were all those different things that went on. Lots of studio issues personal life issues all kinds of things and so it was just difficult for him to talk about it and i was thinking you and i are both kind of i guess dare i say amateur filmmakers or are we good enough to just say we're filmmakers we both made movies um <laughs> but uh
0: we're we're adjacent to filmmaking.
1: <laughs> we're filmmaker adjacent i like it yeah that that's us yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> I, for one, uh, made I, I, I directed and animated a short film when I was in college called "The Ghost Next Door" that went on to. Here I go name dropping my clout. I won a student Emmy. <laughs> uh, per parenthetical, I uh, actually got third place at the student Emmys. Uh, basically, <laughs> crawled across my belly to the finish line. But hey, we still beat a couple dozen other colleges, so that's still cool. But. The, the process of making that film was such a horrible nightmare. I ac- I absolutely hated making it. And so now I can't even watch the film. I can't watch The Ghost Next Door. People have – I've had a few people tell me later, you know, they watch it. They say, hey, I, my kids still like watching it and stuff. I'm just like, I need it out of my life. I mean, I'm, I'm happy it happened. I'm glad <laughs> that we got an award for it. But it – there was a time during production where I never wanted to make another movie again as long as I lived, and I can, I can it was cool to hear something about Orson Welles, who I almost see as this godlike filmmaker, and hear something that's so human and so relatable that there are absolutely things in my life that I'm yeah. proud of, not ashamed of, but I never want to touch again with a 10 foot pole just because of everything that gets wrapped up in the baggage of it. so that was really cool to find out about Citizen Kane.
0: Yeah, I, I think as well, you almost have to protect yourself against it. You know, Beatrice was also talking about how he never looked back and yeah, yeah. as well as never looking back on something like The Magnificent Ambersons, which is a film that's very, very personal to Orson and which gets extremely mistreated in a in a frankly tragic way, cut up and it sort of breaks his heart. Mm. And I think that's the real beginning of the of his dis- disillusionment with Hollywood he gets to walk onto the scene in his early twenties and make Citizen Kane and just sort of wow everybody. Mm-hmm. And then the very next thing he tries to do gets so—I mean, you know—with Hollywood gets so butchered, as we say, by the studio yeah. that it just creates that. But but also there's—you sort of have to protect yourself, I think, from looking back on. And I, I guess Orson had. Built in protection for this by the you know by how fraught his career was with various issues and betrayals and so on, mm-hmm. but you know it'd be hard to to really embrace the label of being a cinematic genius having made this great film as a hot young director, and to let that saturate your choices and your work from then on seems very dangerous to creativity to me,
1: yeah yeah it's 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 somehow touching and i don't know just interesting to me to find out that he grappled with these issues which i mean i guess on the one hand it's it's a little bit bleak cuz you keep thinking that one day you'll get old enough and successful enough that you don't deal with this kind of stuff and that you don't have these habits yeah. but it's simultaneously comforting and a bit a bit rough to acknowledge but
0: well i think one thing to take comfort in is like you said uh, beatrice talked about how how much fun the movie was to make and she's not the only one if you if you listen to i've heard a few interviews with with keith baxter who plays the role of prince hal or henry v as he becomes Mm -hmm. and he also talks about how they had they had so much fun through the whole thing, despite even. I mean, they had to shut down production because money ran out, and everyone had to kind of go away until they got the telegrams from <laughs> Wells saying, "Come back, we we have money now." You know, that's that's the sort of situation they were in, and the freezing cold and all that. You know, as Beatrice alluded to. Yeah, yeah, but it, still, it seems that you know everyone. All the interviews that I've come across, everyone talks about it. With with fondness, and you know, it's sort of there's the sort of truism that gets floated around that the more fun you have making a movie, the less good it is. (laughs) But I think that 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 doesn't apply here. Yeah, Uh, and maybe that's because of how passionate they were, and how you know how much of an independent film it was, constrained by budget. But maybe because of not being tied to a studio, they were they were so free in other ways that it, it wasn't quite as onerous as it may have
1: been. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I think you guys did briefly talk because I mean, this was a lower budget film. It wasn't. It didn't have as big of a studio support, and part of it was the fact that it was a black and white Shakespeare film, which that's yeah. that's not going to necessarily get butts and seats. You know, that's it's yeah. no it's no. It's not box office. <laughs> it's it's no it's no. Uh, Falstaff, Age of Ultron, the. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> But one thing I really liked, uh, Beatrice talked about how it was a great way to introduce new people to Shakespeare who might not have been otherwise familiar with it. And I, I just wanted to elaborate that on a, a bit because I, I sort of, in my mind, at this point in life, I kind of see it as like this scale. There's the, the scale of from peak Shakespeare to to plebeian drivel, you know, it's like the you've got like... Beginners to expert Shakespeare and so you know towards the bottom, not necessarily drivel, but towards the bottom you have the the super accessible stuff that people might not even realize is shakespeare you 've got ten things I hate about you, which was the taming of the shrew you've got you 've got the Lion King, which was clearly hamlet you 've yeah. got <laughs> she 's the man with uh Amanda Bynes, <laughs> which was twelfth Night. Right. So you, And so once you kind of get your feet wet with these and you're like, say, I really like the nature of these stories, you kind of – because you, you can kind of get your feet wet with something like this. You, I mean you've had a little taste of Shakespeare disguised as pop culture and this is a great film for when you want to kind of get a bit more serious about it because – I mean this is classic Shakespeare but presented in a very clever, creative, fun-spirited way as opposed to perhaps – this is purely my opinion but some of the more I guess – High, high art Shakespeare that's that's a very, very faithful adaptation with very little, you know, very little permutation, very little deviation from the source. Like a lot of Kenneth Branagh's adaptations, Akira Kurosawa's Throne of Blood is is kind of a, a dense one to get into as far as accessibility. So if you're looking for something that doesn't treat you like an idiot and it trusts you to follow along, but it also knows how to really squeeze the joy, the, the, the pure joy concentrate out of what Shakespeare represents to a lot of people. I think th- yeah, this is this is this is probably the first if if anybody ever tells me they're like, hey, I just found out ten things I hate about you with Shakespeare. That's crazy. I want to find out more. I can be like, well, have you heard of the Chines of Midnight? It it's 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 really, really well executed. And and he has a lot of fun with the source material with the source material, and we can get into that a bit, but yeah, I appreciated that she said that that this this is a good way to get somebody into Shakespeare who might not otherwise have given it a shot,
0: yeah, and you know, despite the the fact that it's Shakespeare which people sort of associate with English class and things they didn't understand that they didn't want to be doing at the time, mm-hmm. and black and white, which people sometimes unfortunately associate with boring films but but you reminded me now age of ultron you were making a joke about falstaff age of ultron <laughs> age of yeah. ultron was di- was uh, directed by joss whedon wasn't it
1: it sure was yes
0: yeah who himself also made a black he... and white shakespeare movie
1: that's right What was it much ado about nothing what was the one that he did
0: yeah yeah he did he did a, a quick ver- i think it was during the writer's strike yeah, he yeah. he got together at like his house or something with um, some of his acting buddies, you know, Nathan Fillion and others, and <laughs> that's and right. Yeah, they did a they did a black and white modern dress version of Much Ado About Nothing. Just a <laughs> odd connection there. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I think sometimes part of what we're tapping into here is the idea of what makes this accessible in a way is the, is the rhythm. It's not stilted. It's not stagey. I, I've actually got a, a little clip from, from the man himself here, from Orson, that is, not Shakespeare, mm. um, talking about his approach to rhythm in cinema. Wells, of course, being not only a writer, actor, director, but also an editor.
5: I think that movies depend so much on rhythm. They are so close to music. A movie is Closer to music than a drama of the theater. That uh, if the sound and the rhythm of the sound, above all the rhythm, is wrong, no image can can save it. Because the rhythm of the sound... I believe sound is is the first human sense for the theater, not the eye. I think the first theater was a story told by a storyteller. And it's a voice. And the voice determines it. And the rhythm of the voice determines the image. not only what you say, but the rhythm and speed of all the voices in a scene. So I often, when I direct, turn my back on the
1: scene. That's fascinating.
0: It's interesting, too, because it's such a kind of a paradox. His, I mean you know as i was talking about with beatrice he takes such a painterly approach and the cinematography in this film is i mean just the movement of the camera and the blocking of the actors is mm-hmm. you know it's rollicking if not madcap yeah um, yeah very energetic and then from this you know sound forward approach again you know this this rhythm this is this is a film that really moves It's constantly in motion. And I think that really helps to alleviate any of the kind of stilted staginess that people might associate with Shakespeare.
1: It's really, really interesting to me because for – I'm trying to think of of many of the – many quiet moments in the film. There's pretty much – good dialogue going on at almost all points. Even during slower moments, there's really good dialogue between the characters. And it's making me realize, I think one of the things that really carries it, and it makes so much sense hearing him talk about sound, is the confidence with which the lines are delivered. Shakespeare is one of those things where I think, and this is based on my experience as a very paltry Shakespeare performer in my limited experience, uh, if you don't know in your heart of hearts how your character feels and why they're saying what they say in a, in a regular story in a regular screenplay or, or or script, it'll just come through as insincere and kind of bland. But with, with Shakespeare, if you if you don't really believe in your heart and soul what your character is saying, I think it can. It can come off especially to a person like me who has difficulty – I don't have the mental acuity to process Shakespeare properly on my first go-through. Uh, it just ends up being confusing, which is why I think these characters, especially Orson Wells, the way he portrays the character Falstaff, there's so much confidence and enthusiasm and love put into the delivery of the lines. And it's funny because I think about – you mentioned how Shakespeare is kind of – Associated with kind of high class English, sort of like oh, like you know, you hear a dost and a doth, and it's like oh, look at this guy, a big, big tough guy. I, I was thinking about characters like Pistol in the film. These these absolute. Were you, were
0: you bullied by Shakespearean <laughs> Shakespearean actors in high school? They just gathered
1: around me, and big say, tough guys. Thou dost, yeah, man. Jeez, I'm trying to I'm trying to live it down, but. Just keeps coming back to haunt me.
0: <laughs> Sorry, you were you were talking about <laughs> clowns like like pistol.
1: Yeah, yeah. I was thinking about pistol. His character, this guy's just this sleazebag loser, and yeah. he's uh he's very disgusting. He makes he makes some uh some phallus jokes in the film, and it's just it's absurd. But it just again, since it's Shakespeare dialogue, for somebody who is not necessarily, you know, Apprehending the whole thing, they might think like, "Oh, fancy flowery talk." You know, like, uh, this, like this guy's talking fancy, throwing his twenty dollars words around. But really, it's like he's this is like something out of a Seth Rogen movie.
0: <laughs> are you trying to are you trying to say that if you only put in the effort, you can get past all the the poetry to the phallus and scatological humor <laughs> at the heart With, of Shakespeare? Is what where you're there's a will,
1: there's a way. There are a surprising number of dick jokes in Shakespeare. That's all I'm saying. If you put in the work. Cool. You will find them, you' just got to try uh, <laughs> but it 's in-
0: so if you're, for those keeping score at home on the highbrow low brow, you know where to put your time
1: right <laughs> isn 't it frustrating that bow just doesn 't get it yeah no, uh, <laughs> so something else that I thought was kind of cool, going a bit into the movie itself, talking a bit about pistol and and Falstaff himself for me personally, I think one of the reasons I love this movie so much is because. You know, with the limited Shakespearean experience I've had in my life, I tend to gravitate toward the clowns and the fools in the plays. Shakespeare almost always allows—I I can't think of any—I haven't seen every Shakespeare play. I've only seen a few, actually. But the ones I have seen, there's usually at least one idiot that the audience can kind of <laughs> take a breather and kind of like, oh, thank goodness, this guy's here to make a jackass of himself, so we can, so we can not get too depressed watching. Hamlet ruin his life. So I've always kind of gravitated toward that because I was a class clown growing up. One thing that I think this movie captured really well, especially towards the end of the film, was that uh, even fools have to grow up at some point. And there's there's a feeling to Falstaff in this movie, especially kind of progressively as it goes on, that kind of reminds me of some some interviews I've seen with Robin Williams, where you get kind of the world-weary clown who's seen enough stuff to To have their worldview affected a little bit. But they're deep down, they're still the clown. They're still the fool. I, I thought this was a very mature and interesting look at a character like Falstaff, who obviously he's not as big a clown as Pistol, for instance. Pistol is just straight up two-dimensional doofus. You, ha- you have a character like Falstaff who clearly is meant mostly for levity, In I'm, I'm assuming in the plays themselves. Surely he's definitely a source of humor in, in his own movie. But as he watches Hal grow up, and as he sort of watches Hal kind of pivot and shift into his role as the new King of England, there's this feeling, and a lot of it comes through in Orson Welles' incredible acting. I think it's one of the best performances I've I've seen in a long time in a movie that's simultaneously wise and silly and sad. I think those are like the three things that kind of capture it for me. And it made me think, actually... After watching it, I I almost kind of wished that the Edgar Wright film World's End was a streaming original because I I can't remember, but have you seen that one? The World's End? It's part of the Cornetto trilogy that...
0: Yeah, I have. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It it made Mm -hmm. me think a bit about Simon Pegg's character in World's End. If any of our viewers have seen that movie, Simon Pegg's character is kind of desperately trying to recreate the glory days of high school where they did pub crawls and had a lot of fun partying and sort of realizes the, the world that he that he got to have so much fun in is basically gone and he he's having a hard time handling it. And so it's it's an interesting I don't I don't think it's tackled enough in film and literature. I mean, well, who am I to say if it's tackled in literature? People who know me know I'm bad at reading. Uh, <laughs> I'm not I, I can read. I'm just, I just I'm just not good at paying attention. Um, <laughs> but uh the it's something I don't see enough in the stories no. that I take in. Is this look at silly people who realize the world's kind of moved on without them because they haven't grown up fast enough? That's that's kind of that's kind of the bittersweet feeling behind Falstaff, and it really hits home with me because I'm a goofball. I'm a little world weary at this point, so I, I was able to relate a little bit. I was able to put myself in Falstaff's shoes a tad.
0: Yeah, I certainly think it's a film that deals with you know nostalgia. Yeah, and- yeah sort of Lost Eden or, you know, merry old England as it's often talked about. I mean, Wells once said that I'm against my modern age as Shakespeare was against his modern age. <laughs> so he felt a kinship with Shakespeare in that way and kind of hearkening back to sort of the good old days in a way that I don't think is, I don't think it's blind. I mean, I think that both yeah. Wells and Shakespeare and the movie all understand that the idyllic past is is a myth but yeah still it's something in the way that it's yearned for and in the the innocence of it or the those childlike qualities that are that are lost by moving away from it and it's sort of a lament to those sort of things yeah know, along with whatever else it is
1: yeah you're almost left with this impression that you know time must go on Society has to progress. Things have to change. They always do. But you also have to acknowledge that there are some people who are kind of islands unto themselves who just – some people just kind of end up stepping back and letting the rest of time move on without them because they, they find that, that comfort zone. And it's it's cool because it's not really a commentary on for, – for how kind of gross and, and – uh, not necessarily gross but piggish Falstaff can be in the film – you're not, I, I, I have no disdain for him by the end of the film. I only feel, you know, love and sadness for him by the end of the movie.
5: If sack and sugar be a fault, then God help the wicked. If to be old, and many be a sin. Then many an old host that I know is damned. And if to be fat is to be hated, then pharaohs lead kinder to be loved. Oh, my good Lord. Banish Pito, Banish margol, Banish points. But for sweet Jack Falstaff. Hi, Jack Falstaff, true Jack Falstaff, valiant Jack Falstaff. And therefore more valiant, being as he is old Jack Falstaff, banish not him, the Harry's company, banish not him, the Harry's company. Banish, plump, Jack, and banish all the world. <laughs>
1: So it's not it's it's not a cautionary tale, and and it's also like you said, it's also not saying like quit liking progress so much. It's making people like Falstaff sad. It's just it's just what happens.
0: There's not really. A, I mean, we get some of the side characters are are sort of villainous, but even you know if you look at oh, yeah, uh, yeah. King Henry the or Prince Hal or Falstaff or even Percy Hotspur, these are all characters that we are that we sympathize with. Yeah. that we understand what they're trying to accomplish where they're going and none of them is a villain and I don't even think they they don't even see each other as villains. You know, even yeah. even though they have to meet on the battlefield, they don't you know, there isn't a there's no hatred.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. And I I actually I really liked that there was this scene with Hotspur where I mean at the start when we see him, he's basically just a ball of rage and he's sort of in my mind kind of painted as the setup for the film's villain as if he's going to be like the guy who's the source of the contention and the violence in this story but uh obviously there there's a couple of things that happen with his character fairly you know earlier on than i would have imagined they would in this in the film but pro- mm-hmm. probably just like a third or a quarter of the way into the film we see him at home with his wife just having this fun little this fun little intimate scene together
2: I'll know your business, Harry, if you go. So far afoot, I shall be weary, love. Think I'll break my little finger, Harry, if thou wilt not tell me all things true. Way away, you trifler! Ow! Love,
3: I love thee not. I care not for thee, Kate. This is no world to play with mammoths and to tilt with lips.
2: Do you not love me? Do you not
4: indeed? Nay, tell me if you speak in jest or no.
3: Come, wilt thou see me ride. And when I am a horseback, I will swear I love thee infinitely. It
1: it, it made me wish that there were more films. I mean, because everybody talks about how, like, you know, a good villain is the hero of their own story. And I think that there have been some recent efforts in pop culture to try and create villains with slightly more understandable motives, you know, like going going super duper pop culture you know you have the avengers films and thanos and people say that they kind of get why he'd want to do what he does or whatever but even with that there's there's something to be said for a moment where you get to see your supposed villain reacting to things the same way that you probably would i mean even as he's reading this this diatribe this this message basically i mean i think i think discouraging him from carrying through on his threats for war and stuff he's reacting to it like my dad reading the sunday paper and being like can you believe what they're doing in the house you know in congress right now kind of thing and he gets this <laughs> this this moment with his wife yeah. and it's just it's yeah it's very humanizing
0: I, I i think that the i think the character of of hotspur in chimes at midnight is is key to what wells is trying to say because i think if you look at this idyllic sort of um, you know Wells and uh, and various Wellesian scholars and any well s- scholars of you know the Matter of England will talk about Camelot as the great, the great myth, the great idyllic time in English history. Mm-hmm. And I think if Falstaff sort of personifies the, you know the the roguish, foolish, free spirited kind of. Attitude uh, of this time, I think that Hotspur is sort of the the nobility mm. of Camelot, and and especially I I really enjoy the performance by Norman Rodway. I think he really captures the kind of the the anger and the passion and the grievances that he's suffered, which are which are real grievances that he has with the king, mm-hmm. and you know this constant issue of legitimacy that plagues the entire Henriad. I think that. Yeah what we see is someone who is sort of high-minded but also rough and ready and and brave and willing to go to battle anxious to show mercy. You know we see in in Chimes he's he's tricked basically into going into battle. He rides up and both sides are sort of saying let's avoid this. Mm-hmm. And but he but the messenger skews the message to bring about the battle and doesn't allow peace to happen and so they end up hotspur ends up getting killed on the field in that amazing battle sequence yeah oh man I, i think he i think he's a pivotal character i really liked the way he was played and i really liked as well the moment that we're talking about that we get to see with him with his wife kate in really you know the only it's the only um romance i mean we we have a bit of Romance between Dahl and Falstaff, you know, but yeah. she's she's a prostitute and she's passed around, you know, even in the various scenes, just sort of thrown from man to man, which <laughs> seems fine with her. But you know, here we have Kate is is a noble woman with her noble husband, and we get to see their love, but it isn't um, stuffy in any way. It's it's yeah. it's passionate. It's and, human. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's and it's that human element I think that makes this such a great gateway to Shakespeare for people is I think I think a lot of people I'm not I'm not, I don't want to insult the intelligence of anybody who doesn't get Shakespeare because that's me in spite of my love for all the Shakespeare I've seen on a surface level there's plenty of times where I still don't get Shakespeare and I have to put in the legwork to to really find the heart of it. For for people like me, that human element is what draws you in. You see uh, there 's actually that moment where you talked with Beatrice, and you said that if the film had been a, if it had been a silent film, you still would have been able to read everything right and I think i and and she agreed, and I agree, which is to say that the performances of the characters and the way it 's all shot you know there 's that there 's that youtube channel we 've quoted a few times every frame a painting it it feels yeah. like every frame is a painting in this movie the the composition
0: it really does.
1: You could pause almost any shot in this movie and probably take a pretty good guess on what is happening in that scene just by the way everything is staged, the way it's shot, the positioning of the camera. One thing I love, we've talked about this before a bit in private, I think, but the way that, the way that Orson shot himself – most of the time as Falstaff. Um, so yeah. his character, he plays Falstaff as a very, very fat man. And <laughs> here's another example of how mythic this movie is. People can't even agree. I've I've read trivia and seen and heard interviews and stuff saying that he was – he actually had to slim down for the role of the fat Falstaff. And I've heard other people – there's a uh, – the film scholar James Narimore said that he actually was – he had to wear like a fat suit to bulk up for the part. So who knows? It's just – it's descended into <laughs> myth. He really goes out of his way to make Falstaff seem like a pretty gross person and a pretty big person because there's lots of these low angles looking up at him that, that kind of – just make him seem like this booming big guy. And yeah. he's there's plenty of times where he kind of like yeah. tucks his chin down, gives himself a double chin, snows his words, and <laughs> just really kind of hams up the, the sleaze for us. Wait, it, it well, and the way confidence. he
0: screws up his face all the time, you know, yeah! like he's just, you, you know, he's wearing a, a false nose as he did for most of his films. He actually, mm-hmm. this is too good. Not to mention that uh, he he disliked his nose because he felt that he was in many ways an exterior sort of actor uh-huh. and loved to play around with with makeup and he he always felt that his nose his uh, Wells Zone nose was a little too cute a little too upturned and cute for some <laughs> of the like the big villainous characters that he wanted to play he he felt and this is a quote. He said that he had the face of a depraved baby. That's what, he felt his, that's what he felt about his own face. He had the face of a depraved baby. So, yeah, he loved to put on false false noses and and tweak, you know, with, with, with prosthetics the uh, what he was doing to his face and then shadow all that in black and white, which he called the actor's friend, and uh, create these various appearances. And – yeah. And part of it, of course, is the prosthetics, but a lot of it is what he's doing. You know, the way he's screwing up his face, he just looks like straight out of a painting.
1: He does. Yeah. He's like, a, he's just a, a big gluttonous renaissance <laughs> uh, cherub. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's, it's, it's wonderful. All right. So, yeah, I, 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 could, I could honestly talk about Chimes of Midnight for forever. That uh, it was That's such a fun movie to talk about, but we should probably pivot over to uh, the response film, which was The King on Netflix, uh Bo. When I want to want 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 to take it from there,
0: yeah. You assigned me The King, which is extremely apt because it covers the same characters. Yeah, we are still. The The King also follows the adventures of Prince Hal, soon to become <laughs> Henry V. But here, the battle to put down Percy Hotspur's rebellion. And Hal's coronation is king. Pretty much all the events of Chimes at Midnight are over by the 34-minute mark in this film, which is about two and a half hours. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah, for those of you following along at home, we are mostly going to be concerned here with the Henry V portion of the Henryad. <laughs> so Hal, Hal is played by Timothy Chalamet, and, and he starts this film as almost a reluctant superhero, I felt.
1: Yeah, Unlike I thought so the,
0: too. Typical Shakespeare version of Hal, who's seen as like a youthful rabble rouser, or maybe kind of calculating. Here he's he feels like any of the pleasure that he's taking, any of like that merrymaking, which we don't really get much of. Yeah, just a um, bit is kind of him hiding from his demons. I feel like. Yeah. Uh, So yeah, we also have Falstaff here, um, and he's he's played by a friend of the podcast uh, Joel Edgerton, who co-wrote the screenplay. I saw uh, that for yeah. the king, yeah, and, and he's a he's a much more subdued and stoic Falstaff, and he's also going to live longer than than Wells's Falstaff. He continues yeah. on well, or Shakespeare's, for that matter. Even though he's a character invented by Shakespeare in the King, he's going to persist and follow Henry, well, Hal, that is, into France to continue the. Hundred Years War and so on. So mm-hmm. so yeah, pretty pretty early on, Hal is crowned king, and almost immediately he's being pressured to war with France. And this seems to come at him from almost every quarter. This pressure, one of the key influences or influencers is William the Ch- William Chief Justice, uh, who's played by Sean Harris.
1: He's a fantastic actor, and
0: he yeah he really is. Uh, he's got that sort of yeah. There's something kind of magnetic and occasionally powerful, occasionally dastardly, but he has a very watchable face and an odd energy and the distinctive kind of raspy voice.
1: Well, what we are witnessing is a stirring of which we must be wary. I kind of see him as the other side of the Mads Mikkelsen coin. <laughs> it's kind of a yeah, that,
0: that's true. They're they're comparable. Yeah,
1: yeah, they evoke a similar sensation, but almost kind of inversely. They they both are kind of somehow creepy yet attractive and 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 fun to watch all at the same time. They're just very compelling actors yeah.
0: and interesting. He he did a more straight up Shakespeare adaptation with he was if I'm yeah he was Macduff in that's right. In Macbeth, in the Macbeth with uh, Fassbender. With Michael
1: Fassbender, yeah. Who
0: directed it just now. Anyway, so what we find is Hal is very reluctant to go to war with France. He's very sort of – despite his reluctance to accept the crown and uh, the – at least talked about nature of his roughhouse days, he's a, a very principled, if morose – character who uh, doesn't want to shed blood in unnecessary war and doesn't have any sort of lust to conquer France for the the bare accomplishment of the thing. It takes a lot of pressure to get him there. People advising it, people trying to convince him that he's actually the legitimate heir to the throne based on convoluted hereditary lines Mm -hmm. and then – Ultimately, what ends up deciding it is that William, the chief justice played by Sam or Sean Harris, discovers a plot where an, a French assassin was sent to kill him. And so this ends up being the sort of the final affront, the bridge too far. Hal decides to take the war over to France. And he even convinces his, his old buddy, Sir John Falstaff, to essentially become a, a a general in this escapade and, and off they go to france where they're going to have some very important battles indeed and that's yeah the basic setup of this film so yeah following a mixture of mythology actual history and the shakespeare version of events and that takes us there
1: yeah, good recap. I think uh, I, I wanted to comment a bit on your initial words about Hal in this film, as played by Timothy Chalamet. I, th- I think Timothy Chalamet. How old is he? He's only like twenty four, twenty five. He's he's still. He's he's pretty young still. I think he's an up and comer. Yeah, but he's already had some standout roles in Interstellar, Call Me by Your Name. He's in the upcoming Dune film.
0: Yeah, he's in Wes Anderson's new movie. That's he's right. definitely the the it boy right now.
1: He is. Yeah. He was uh,
0: he, he was in Woody Allen's film that was that was um, banned in the U.S.
1: Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. He's also in uh, Lady Bird, um, which was another right. big one that made yeah. waves. Uh, he's. Uh, I don't. I don't know if I've seen enough of him yet to have a super strong opinion. This was actually only the second film that I've personally seen him in. Uh, the only other one I saw was Interstellar, and he was much younger in that one. But my, I, he he leaves a strong impression. I, I I do. I like watching him act. But as you mentioned, there's an awful lot of kind of. I'm not going to say two-dimensional brooding, but it's not particularly deep. Because, like you said, there's. It's interesting in Chimes at Midnight. You get the feeling that that Hal. Is kind of learning to take responsibility, whereas in this one, it seems almost like he's already got what it takes to be a king. He just doesn't want it. He's the John, he's the John Snow of the, of this film, and it's it's interesting. There's actually you know nowadays there's you hear a lot of times the phrase thrown around Mary Sue or Gary Stew or whatever, where it's a character who is so perfect as to be unrelatable and even perhaps unlikable to to certain viewers and. I think Chalamet does a great job. I think that the I, I I thought the dialogue was all well written and everything, but I think narratively, uh, his character it, it was the kind of thing where we sort of watch him go from one scene to another, having an opinion and ultimately being right. And the only times that he makes mistakes are when he listens to the advice of other people who were either foolish or had bad intentions. So it it, it makes for kind of an uncompelling character, and that's. I mean, I, I guess I'd say that's on paper because it's fun to watch Timothy Chalamet act. But I, I was, I, w- I was a little surprised after watching *Chimes at Midnight* at how, frankly, kind of uninteresting Hell uh, was in, in *In the King*.
0: Yeah, I mean, and they they definitely take away which, if the riotous sort of womanizing nature wasn't entirely made up by Shakespeare, it was at least cemented in the popular mind by Shakespeare. It doesn't. Yeah actually seem to have a lot of bearing historically. And uh, what David, I think it's David Michaud? I think that's how it's pronounced.
1: What nationality is that, by the way, that last name, David Michaud?
0: Well, it sounds French, but he himself is Australian. I don't know what his heritage is, but okay. yeah, he's Australian. So, by the way, we're dealing with Shakespeare and all this you know, mythic British stuff. But uh, it's just an interesting side note that we're really looking at it from an outsider's perspective in a way with both because Wells, of course, is an American director and Michaud is an Australian director huh, with yeah. working with a fellow Australian, Joel Edgerton, on the screenplay. Oh, yeah. These are sort of foreign conceptions of most important of British stories. Speaking of the youthfulness, digging into the further into the character of Hal, I mean we do see that Hal in, in Wells' version – Played by Keith Baxter is certainly skilled with a a sword and mm-hmm. does best Percy Hotspur in battle. But in this version, I mean, uh, Tim Timothy Chalamet. I guess I mean he's he's a he's a pretty slight guy. You know, he's very. I, I'm not sure how tall he is, but he he has kind of a small appearance, youthful.
1: Yeah, he could play thin. a much more dire Peter Parker. He's got that kind of thin frame. Yeah. And- uh,
0: yeah. And so he, he comes in as kind of being this, this dour, broody, sort of cynical and over everybody, but he's gonna step in now and save and he and he goes and challenges Hotspur to to personal combat without there being a battle at all in this case, unlike that big battle scene that we get in Chimes. Yeah, they they fight it out in a really sort of schoolyard brawl kind of way that just ends with a bit more grisly violence than a schoolyard brawl. But it's a lot of <laughs> fist to cuffs. Slamming, pummeling the other guy in the face with armored hand, yeah, yeah. until someone can't get up anymore. Yeah, uh, but it, it's uh, just for the heck of it. So, Hal himself as in the Man from History. Really did live a, a life of combat. He was knighted by age thirteen. He was leading battles, and actually fighting in them, not just you know from the strategy tent off in the background from huh. a young age. And he w- and he was crowned king by age twenty six. So, Timothy actually, you know, historically, maybe sort of looking and fitting the part in that way with, yeah, his, the with his youthfulness.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think he was a good pick for the character. And another one, another bit of casting that pleased me even more was Joel Edgerton.
5: Well, I say this, not out of concern for our king's well-being, but more for fear of the drunken soak to which you'll be likely to succumb should you fail to eat his call and he were to die Without well, you ever squared the ledger.
1: Based on the fact that he was one of the co-writers, I wouldn't be surprised if he helped write this, thinking like, "Oh, please let me take a stab at Falstaff." I, I wouldn't be surprised if he was champing at the bit to play that role because I actually I really liked his portrayal of it. It was very very different from Orson Welles' version but yeah. you could kind of see i guess the seed at the at the center of it almost as if you were to consider almost if you considered the original play as like scripture and these are just two different interpretations of it he, he still plays him as kind of a kind of a, a whimsical kind of wistful drunk with some some world-weary experience and and wisdom and knowledge locked away but i think i think it's safe to say Joel Edgerton's Falstaff has things a bit more together <laughs>
0: Yeah, I I mean I don't I'm not sure to what extent I, I agree with you actually. Oh. I think that I mean the characters are so essentially different. I mean maybe maybe Wells Falstaff has a sort I don't know if he has courage exactly. He's kind of a coward. He at least has love, which I suppose is a you know, and some loyalty, which is, I suppose is a sort of
1: courage. That's true, that's but true,
0: yeah. Edgerton's version of Falstaff is sort of stoic and self assured and I mean, really I found it kind of I mean they don't emphasize it too much, so I suppose it's it's not a big deal, but really all we get is one kind of one brief scene of some slow motion <laughs> yeah, dancing, dancing at the club It lasts a few seconds. Yeah. And and Hal laughing, and that's really the stand-in to represent the entirety of his like rebellious, wasteful youth is just looks like he went to a party once. <laughs> <laughs> That is true. we get a moment with him with Hal and a woman who is probably a prostitute, but she's she's not a named character and it's not a prolonged or even really passionate scene. just looks like some sort of after party happenings yeah, as yeah. might happen some walk of shame business. What we find is that Falstaff in this version in the King is the the most principled probably the wisest, you know, maybe not the most adept at at statecraft, you know, at like Machiavellian plotting. In terms of sort of good old boy wisdom, he's he's the wisest, the kindest and the best character. So if we take Wells at his word of Falstaff being, you know, one of the great good people in literature, then I think we at least get that here. In the yeah. Falstaff, in a very different sort of way, is a very good character. Yeah, in the king.
1: That's a good point, and it is interesting. Hearing you describe it, I'm realizing he falls victim to some of the same writing issues that I think plague Hal, which is he, he is just so gosh darn likable that it it almost ends up creating a bit of a, a bit of a shallow interpretation of the character. Uh, whereas I think Orson Welles' version of the character is is deeply deeply flawed and. He doesn't even necessarily grow all that much, but it's
0: yeah. He he represents a kind of innocence, I think, in in Wells' version. Whereas yeah. here, I, maybe we do have him representing a kind of innocence. What I think is interesting is that he's sort of like what happens to Hal over the course of the King is that he's he from the reluctant yet principled um, sort of anti-hero superhero kind of character he becomes by gaining power, a more corruptible, eventually kind of a ruthless character. Mm. You know, there's a moment where he wants to put some prisoners to death Oh, yeah, to make things safer and faster for his armies as they're navigating the campaign in France. And Falstaff refuses to carry out the order. He asks Falstaff to, to make it happen. He refuses to carry out the order and he just sort of – Frankly and without a lot of worry says, You no, you're not that you're not that kind of man. You don't you don't mean what you're saying. It it feels like Hal sort of profits by that conversation and he doesn't end up killing those prisoners. But what we find is later on, when spoiler alert, Falstaff is killed in battle after that battle, Hal immediately has a bunch of prisoners put to death.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So as soon as Falstaff is sort of gone as his conscience, we see that he's taken on that sort of – the sort of ruthless practicality of being a being a monarch.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. That makes for actually a kind of an interesting parallel to Chimes of Midnight because Chimes of Midnight, I would say Hal's journey is one from a kind of a gleeful, careless rapscallion to a stoic, serious king – and it's that that journey and that transition. Whereas in this one, I think it's almost his transition from a stoic good soul to being corrupted by the requirements of being a king. It kind of kind of showing that no good thing can last. Sort of that uh, even even his optimism and and uh, perhaps naivete was eventually overcome by the horrors of war and whatnot.
0: I don't think Edgerton and Michaud in their version share. Shakespeare's idea of the divine rights of kings. Shakespeare certainly saw that the kings and nobility could be wicked, and he was fine to expose that. But he had this belief in sort of a, you know, that that God was was with the king if the king was with God, and mm. so that there was a a power vested in the monarchy, you know, through through divine right. Whereas this, you know, everybody's pretty squishy and corruptible in in this, except for Falstaff,
1: maybe in The King. Yeah. Makes for an interesting dynamic. So
0: I think one of the one of the jarring things if you're watching these films, you know, if you're pairing these films together as we were, is the difference in the pacing. Yeah. We already talked about the way Wells approaches things with a rhythm and the what we called rollicking and madcap sort of pace in Chimes of Midnight, which is full of movement and foreground and background it's you know extremely cinematic in that silent film way whereas this film is much more of a moody machiavellian period drama yeah they've dropped the shakespearean language the the it's not elizabethan really even it's it's antiquated and rather than the sort of jaunty I don't know if it's medieval but it certainly invites medieval to the mind. Music in chimes at midnight and this we sort of have moody ambient music. I mean there are a lot of scenic shots of fields and there are sunsets. Sun glinting off the armor of soldiers as they march through, you know, muddy bogs and so on where uh Chimes of Midnight has has no time no moment for any of these things. Uh Chimes of yeah. Midnight is zipping along at sort of breakneck pace in a way that's choreographed beautifully into a into a kind of dance or rhythm as as well as put it whereas this yeah is much more musing and even brooding cinematic in the sense that we get to see big scenic vistas and things that we wouldn't get on the stage or anywhere else, but not necessarily doing as much with well not necessarily not even nearly doing as much with foreground and background and camera movement or anything like that. But I I couldn't help when watching this film to think if they had embraced streaming a little bit more and gone all the way into making a mini series. Yeah, yeah. I might have been more more pleased with that. It's two and a half hours. If they had fleshed out certain bits, and also I think it would have benefited from some episodic hooks. It's already divided into chapters anyway, so it seems like a logical step.
4: It's true. not saying
0: that I don't know whether they had that option to begin with, but it just feels like a direction that I would have been happy to see the the film take.
1: Yeah, likewise. This movie suffers from that weird problem where it simultaneously feels like it's dragging and it also feels rushed and that's not a huge knock on on the story cuz i did enjoy the king if they had broken it down into maybe 3 or 4 episodes just like a, a nice little mini series i think they could have done a lot of justice you could have had each one be hour hour and a half long not overstay its welcome get and then get really into these characters it seemed to want to like you mentioned, it's a bit it's a bit slower and, and, and more introspective than Chimes of Midnight, because Chimes of Midnight moves along at a pretty brisk pace through the whole thing, but they never quite commit to that with this movie. It seems like they're always kind of teasing the idea that there's something lurking beneath the surface for a lot of these characters, but we never get the chance to really dig into it. So there's a lot of just kind of teasing at the possibility that maybe things will get interesting.
0: Well, actually, maybe before we talk about any of the characters, should we just dive in? We... And maybe we can hearken a little bit back to Chimes, but should we talk about some of these these battle scenes? I have a few things to say yeah, about yeah about some of these battles. So I, yeah, let's talk okay. about
1: battles both here and with Chimes because I think we we glazed over it a bit on that one.
0: I'm just going to jump right into okay in 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 Chimes the the big battle, which is probably the thing that gets praised the most from that film. What Wells was able to do with the editing and how seminal it was. The big battle there is the Putting down Percy Hotspur's rebellion, which Mm -hmm. as we've already said in The King is not even a battle. It just ends up becoming a fight of champion against champion, Hal against Percy in that sort of brawl and and that's the extent of it. It
1: does become a battle off screen that results in the death of of Hal's brother. The epic epic ranger of it is definitely lost.
0: Yeah, exactly. There's a couple battles that we get to see, but the the big one is, is Agincourt. And I don't know Chris if you're familiar with Agincourt it's the set piece of of Henry V but it's also d- deeply important and certainly taught a lot in British history it's you know if you if you if you grew up in the UK you've certainly heard of Agincourt I don't know oh. how they talk about it in France but in the UK it's a big deal Interesting And part of the reason it's a big deal is because you know of what Henry F- Henry V was able to you know quote unquote accomplish which is to arrive in France, essentially conquer France, and unite under one big kingdom, Wales and England and France. He makes an arrangement with Charles the Mad after hard-fought campaign. And one of the most important battles, like we've been saying, is is Agincourt. Mm-hmm. And it's remembered because the numbers are are really – they differ widely, but – it might have been something around the French with twenty or so thousand soldiers, and the English with around eight thousand. They were outnumbered, and so you know it makes for a great sort of heroic underdog victory. And also, it was an important battle in this campaign. Yeah. And one of the reasons why they won the battle here for your this is your, your, your this is your your history lesson mm. for the episode is um, because of their longbowmen. And we see this in the film The King. They they talk about the Importance of the longbowmen and the English longbow are, are famous. So these longbows, by the way, are are like six feet tall. So they're going to be taller than some of the people that are carrying them. Now, Hal had about three longbowmen to every one soldier, and that's a much higher ratio than the French, who yeah didn't have nearly as many per soldier. So roughly mm. roughly five thousand English archers are at the battle, and now this is remarkable. It's estimated that during the battle, the English longbowmen had three arrows in the air at any given moment. Huh. And to give you an idea of the power of the longbow, the draw weight on a longbow is something near 14 stone or, or 200 pounds. So that's 200 pounds of force that you have to pull back with your arrow hand.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: To lob this this arrow just to knock Jeez
1: it. Jeez Louise.
0: So uh, skeletons of of these archers have – they show like elongated, dense bones in the in the the arrow hand the you know the <laughs> draw hand wow. from what they had to do to to get these off but but these are very decisive in in the battle they they say actually that more people drowned uh died of drowning in the Battle of Agincourt because of the muddy conditions yeah. and all of the rocking around in the mud, but certainly the archers reigned massive chaos and were key in deciding the in the victory. So we get a fair bit of that represented in The King. We definitely see the muddy conditions and it's sort of Falstaff who has the stroke of genius and who gets to be the the major hero and and really believes in an English victory. And what we get in the battle is really – it's safe to say I think that it's inspired also by what Wells did in Chimes at Midnight. Yeah. If not because of the it doesn't have the same sort of frantic editing style, but it is it is violent, it is unglamorous, and it is it it gives you the idea of what it would be like to be in one of these battles. You know, it's not it like um intricate sword play and you know, and fun moves and spinning around it 's body to body clashing until one side just gives up yeah, out of the chaos
1: i I really appreciated that aspect of it because it was um i don't know I feel like it 's kind of rare to see something that can make a battle scene exciting and engaging while also keeping it fairly grounded and as upsetting as it should be because it does feel upsetting at times there's a there's a scene towards the end of it. I think it's shortly before Falstaff gets killed. Uh, He kind of gets overwhelmed by a group of soldiers and kind of gets almost hoisted up like he's crowd surfing a bit from the shoulders up, pressed together by a bunch of these soldiers. Yeah. And it it actually reminded me of a scene that I think most fans of Game of Thrones would recognize from a famous battle called the Battle of the Bastards in Game of Thrones season six. It's a very similar situation where uh, Jon Snow... It's actually almost the same shot, even, uh, where you get kind of the main heroic figure of the battle finds himself pressed on all sides by just tons of soldiers, allies and enemies alike. Just this massive mosh pit of flesh and armor and just people grunting and they can't move and they're slipping on the mud and they're all just smashing together. And it's incredibly claustrophobic. I get very, very tense in dense crowd situations. And so my heart rate jumped up during that scene in both the movie and in Game of Thrones. I, and I love that they did that because it's, you know, in the heat of the battle, a lot of times, what is it Mike Tyson says? Everybody has a plan till they get punched in the face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, the, even the best laid battle plans can end up with a giant pile of heaving metal clad bodies trying not to drown and die and suffocate.
0: Yeah. And, and they do, they definitely emphasize that. Um, And especially with that shot which you're talking about, which is a memorable shot from the film, that sort of bird's eye view of this chaos. Mm -hmm. I couldn't help but feel – I mean – okay, So in Wells' battle in Chimes, we have that same sort of sense of discombobulated chaos Uh and brutality. But they take it to almost an expressionistic degree – in the king i feel to the point where i can't see how anybody would tell who is on their side yeah at all like the only reason we as the audience can is because clearly for the audience's benefit falstaff loses his helmet at one point right so that we're able to see out of the sea of helmeted bodies where falstaff is so we can kind of follow him and later when hal himself runs into the battle. As part of the unarmored troops, we see him going from foe to foe, but I have literally no idea how he can tell who is friend and who is foe. (laughs) I see no nuances in the armor style. They're not wearing any sort of coat of arms or bands or colors to differentiate. I have a hard time imagining that's accurate just because it would be so incredibly inefficient.
1: Yeah, it would be a bit impractical.
0: It maybe it's an expressionistic choice to show sort of the you know the brutality and the and how juvenile to to be killing over you know the the whims of these kings and so on. Yeah, we're all just but, people in the mud. Yeah, boggling and, and even a little bit distracting because
1: <laughs> I just kept thinking, well, what? I didn't know, do, even.
0: Who do you even know? Do
1: do you even know who you're fighting? <laughs> like, I what did you think? I mean, somehow. Somehow that didn't even really register me register for me as I was watching. I was really? I was mostly enthralled that that scene you're talking about where where Hal storms the field and we get that a very a very long shot or a very well-edited sequence of shots to look as if it was one shot of him kind of going from one person to another and uh, getting yeah. kicked by a guy on a horse and there's like it's it's very gritty and visceral and I, I was so caught up in the moment I just kind of assumed everybody he was killing was French uh, <laughs> but you know, it would be great yeah. it would be great if uh, I, I wonder if there's a, a you know a special director's cut where with an extra audio track where just as you hear all the stabbing and slicing and groaning occasionally you just hear like oh same side sorry same side. Sorry. <laughs> ah, same side. Sorry. And a couple of a couple of people saying that in French, you know. Yeah. Uh,
0: yeah. So I – yeah, because maybe I was already looking for it because having seen, you know, Chimes a few times and watching that battle, I think we are struck by the, you know, the, the chaos of it and the idea that like, oh, this is not like – I mean <laughs> anyone who sits down and thinks about going into a battle for more than a few minutes understands that it's not going to be a good time. But this, you know, Chimes really makes you – reminds you of that fact. You know, mm-hmm. this isn't something where you can go in and kind of test your fencing skills with that guy's fencing skills. It's you're going <laughs> to like rush in there and just pray that you don't get clobbered while you're trying to clobber this other guy over here. Um, And it's very chaotic. And that was born out of you – it know, with Wells, not only out of design but also out of necessity. He at one point had up to 150 – extras, which he was very proud that he did it with so few. But Joseph Joseph McBride, a scholar who does some commentary uh, for chimes, uh, reckons that on a lot of the battle days, he had about a dozen extras that he was using (laughs) to create his, his big battle sequence. And Wells himself has said that if you could see the beginning and ending of all the shots that he cut in there, you would just see what he called, quote, sad gypsy extras wondering when they get to eat and where they're supposed to go next. <laughs> like he said it's you know he said until until he really got in and edited it, it was pretty lackluster.
1: Oh man.
0: Which is incredible considering what it came to do. And as Beatrice already mentioned, several big directors, including Mel Gibson with Braveheart, mm-hmm. credited that battle sequence as the one that helped them understand how to make their movie. So there's already that sort of disambiguity between sides in the chaos of chimes at midnight, but you get the idea that that's sort of from the audience perspective. Like I feel like with, between their coats of arms and their styles of armor and and who is wearing a helmet and who isn't, that they could there is at least the the ghost of a chance of knowing whether you're trying to kill your friend or your foe, <laughs> especially when they're mucking about in the mud. Yeah, and everybody's covered in helmets and armor that essentially just to my eyes anyway looks pretty much the same from man to man yeah how you do anything but just i guess just stab and maim until somebody tells you to stop
1: <laughs> <laughs> See, that's another thing in the director's cut that we need you have you need to have a few intercut shots of just like some guy who stabs somebody kind of looks up flips up the visor on his helmet and looks around kind of squinting he's like did we win <laughs> And I think going back a bit to, to Chimes, the way you were describing it, um, that was one of the things I liked in the interview with, with Beatrice when she was talking about how he was able to make twenty seem like two hundred. Or it, it made me think a little bit about authenticity as it pertains to VFX. And you know, on a similar note, one of the reasons why the Lord of the Rings trilogy is still so beloved even after twenty years, I think a lot of it stems from the philo- like the that authenticity that they poured into a lot of what they did and i i was wondering why why it is that we value it so much like in this case i think apart from the ambiguity of who's who i do think that the the fights the the, the big epic battles in the king are are very well shot and and well executed and and engaging and exciting and intense but of, of the two, if I had to choose which one was a greater achievement it would probably be chimes of midnight by a country mile just because of the limitations that were faced and the creativity that had to go into is overcoming that and I think I think part of what makes authenticity in special effects so appealing is that as the audience we're not just seeing the story play out we're also seeing problem solving in action so with CGI as good as it may be as much... Work as it may be, the audience isn't usually left with the impression of how did they do that? Like, what must they have, what what must they have done to make that work and look as good as it did? Kind of thing. And as an animator myself, I, I'm a professional animator. Just like I throw that out there, I am a professional animator. I know that there is a lot of problem solving that goes on behind the scenes. There is a lot there is a lot of the 3D modeling and animation equivalent of making 20 men seem like 200, but. The story of that is so much more technical and boring than describing the techniques of how you would assemble people and stage your camera just right. Because you're dealing with real people and it's, there's, there, there's just more of a story to it. And it's easier for an audience member to understand. They say, how did you shoot that? Oh, we didn't have enough people. Oh, no. What would you do next? Well, we set the camera here and we had to arrange this thing. Oh, my gosh. But with you know with, with animation, it's like, you know... This rig almost didn't work. If he had turned his arm this way, his shoulder would just fly out the back of his head. Well, uh, okay, you know, what, what did you do? Oh, well, I, <laughs> I implemented some, 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 some code and I did this and this. And So when somebody like Wells or later Peter Jackson, they give themselves these puzzles to solve to incorporate as much physical, real stuff as possible, the method used becomes as much a work of art as the finished product itself. It's, it's really, I think that's one of the reasons why it's so awesome specifically to watch the battle in Chimes of Midnight is you just, you can, you can quite physically see the blood, sweat and tears poured into making that scene as epic as it was, which makes it all the more epic. I think
0: also, and, and this, this wouldn't have made it into a, into a very pleasing film, but from what I understand, a lot of these longbowmen uh, at, at this battle were, were naked from the waist down. Huh? Yeah. Uh any reason? <laughs> that's how they do. The reason is equally unpleasant as the image that I've given you and that's uh dysentery was the reason.
1: Yes, okay. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah.
0: Right? <laughs> I mean, I guess it's hard to pick who you want to be, you know. Do you want to be the guy with the half naked guy with dysentery pulling back a two hundred pound shot over and over for however long, or you want to be one of the guys down there in the mud, right up against a, a, <laughs> that's that a sea of whatever else. Yeah, that's where I just rock in a hard place. Yeah,
1: exactly. At that point, I'm just kind. of... <laughs> I think I have the black lung. I'm gonna have to gonna have to head back. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I, I do want to get into a little bit. Um, we're probably, we're running up on time here, but I did want to just very very briefly touch on. The – I don't even know what noun I would use to describe the effect that oh, – that uh, Edward Cullen, my goodness. Why can't I remember his name? I've liked him in a lot of movies recently. Robert Pattinson. Robert Pattinson. Good gravy. What is wrong with me? Yeah. Uh, Robert Pattinson. The Dauphin. The Dauphin. So <laughs> I just want to say I, – I thought – I I, I imagine during the screenwriting process they're thinking, okay, so here's where we meet the real villain of the piece. He's very bad and he's very French. So we need to get, (laughs) we need to get somebody who can really sell badness and Frenchness. And so they got out old Robert Pattinson and they said, "Hey, how bad and how French can you get?" And he just kind of slumped back in his chair and he said, "Uh, "I love English. (laughs) He's so stupid." (laughs) And they were like, "My word, you're hired." I have not come to offer you surrender
5: if that is what you're hoping. I have come to describe for you your end days.
0: <laughs> uh, D- David Michaud said that he did I mean, they did encourage him to be outlandish. They said that they wanted his character to be flamboyant and ridiculous, and he certainly embraces that.
1: I almost wish he could have had like a twirly mustache and maybe some fondue he could dip, like maybe some just kind of off, you know, just like the most cartoonishly French. Kind of with a baguette and a yeah. glass of wine, just like, oh, 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 these English, they do not know what they are doing. Oh. But it's it, – the way he speaks was so kind of like stilted and – I mean, but okay, you, yeah. you, you speak French remarkably well. What did you think of his accent and the way he delivered that – his lines?
0: Okay, well, I'm going to stop you right there with remarkably well. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was mostly fluent in French. Like a dozen years ago. <laughs> I wouldn't say that I speak it remarkably well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I will say that, that well, there's a lot of, uh, I was going to bring up the accents if you didn't. The, there's strange casting going on in that regard. We've got yeah. an American playing Hal. We've got an American or at least someone with an American accent playing Catherine, the the queen, Lily Rose Depp. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, We've got, we've got an Australian playing Falstaff. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got an Australian playing King Henry the Fourth with Ben Mendelssohn. <laughs> That's right, and and then we've got an Englishman playing a Frenchman playing the Dauphin. <laughs> yeah, playing the Frenchman. So a lot of a lot of people are putting on accents for this film. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, on the one hand, it is pretty ridiculous, and it does get close to Monty Python territory. <laughs> but also, you know, I did I did I did know one Frenchman who. <laughs> Was pretty close when he was speaking English <laughs> really? to, to what we get with with Robert Pattinson. Yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm not going to drop his name here, but yeah, he was. He he was pretty close. But I, I will say, I was uh, setting aside the performances and just focusing on the accent. I was much more impressed with what Lily Rose Depp did with her French accent. Yeah than I was with with what uh, Robert Pattinson was doing, as fun as it may have been <laughs> at moments,
1: yeah, she was very convincing, I thought I thought she was genuinely French uh, from the get-go.
3: me comment notre pourrait avoir lieu dans l'interval
5: may as much I wonder about a great many things.
3: Indeed there must be for you to contemplate marriage to a woman about whom you know so little. Hmm. I will not submit to you.
0: Her 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 mouth posture and everything like the way that she she really I mean I don't know her own gift. She did work with a dialect coach and I I believe that she I mean her father is a French citizen, Johnny Depp, so yeah. I don't know what experience she has with the French language, but the way that she The the tightness of her mouth, the movement of her lips. She's got the oral posture down for Mm. the French accent. And she – yeah, she does a very convincing job. Nice. With with Robert – I mean Robert Pattinson already has the the, the deck sort of stacked against him because people people really love to hate an accent when Mm. they know that it isn't the accent of the actor. Yeah, they'll nitpick. I'm convinced. I'm really convinced that sometimes people, if they didn't know, they wouldn't even bat an eye. And they would think, oh, yeah, it sounds just like a, you know, a Frenchman or Australian or whatever. But if they know, if it's an iconic actor who they know what his voice sounds like, Mm -hmm. they're really ready to to scrutinize people that often I'm like, yeah, I don't really buy your knowledge on this. I'm not Uh sure that you actually can tell the difference. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know. Uh, Robert Pattinson really is hamming it up. Yeah, and we've got a uh, we've got a guest coming on in a few episodes who's a linguist who addresses this topic a lot. Mm. But even you know, let's put it this way: nobody, absolutely no character in the actual events that are examined in, in both of these films would speak like the actors that portray them. The accent that. The Shakespearean – what we associate even as a Shakespearean accent, like that sort of John Gilgood, Sir John Gilgood kind of Lawrence Olivier delivery, is certainly not what Shakespeare would have sounded like. And the French wouldn't have even been the same sort of French that they were speaking in the film. So it's all about flavor and mood and getting the audience into the story because mm-hmm. it's certainly not going to be accurate. If it was accurate, we'd have to have subtitles during the whole movie for <laughs> the English speakers and the – and the French speakers
1: right right and and it's actually kind of interesting because thinking about it i've actually uh, i I was in Romania for a while, and I've spoken to some Romanians who could speak English, and there is something to it, I think the way that he delivers the lines that it, at first and perhaps even now I think feels a bit stilted and awkward because there's this sort of there's this r- rhythm of how he speaks, you know, referring back I guess to Orson Welles talking about how you know, the the rhythm of the scene is what matters most. There's this there's this sort of cadence where it's like, Hello, I am here. I like you. Yeah, you know, I my soldiers and I? We will kill you. And yeah. and it's it's kind of this little like little And uh thinking about it, a a lot of I have spoken to Romanians where it's this it's this kind of it 's this place a person can be at mentally where they are feeling very confident and cocksure, but their mastery of the language is not good, <laughs> and so mm. they end up f- acting like they 're showing off with their with their English, but it ends up coming off as a bit stilted, and you do get this kind of sl- this little these little little stints of deliberation between every other couple of words. maybe that was deliberate, maybe that was intentional he 's definitely hamming it up for sure but i 'd like to think that yeah. some level of research went into choosing to do it as awkwardly as he did
0: yeah absolutely i mean he's definitely trying to capture the french the french cadence yeah i mean well there are new, there are numerous french accents of course but that's standard stuff i'm sure he that he well he probably worked with a, a dialect coach mm-hmm. a, at least a little even though he wasn't striving for insane accuracy maybe as much as setting a certain tone and, and frankly a bizarre tone i mean he he is kind <laughs> of a he does sort of feel like he waltzed in from a different movie.
1: Yeah, well, it feels like he walked out of a labyrinth. <laughs> like he should be the Goblin King. <laughs> he just needed some slightly higher, tighter pants and his hair up a little bit more, and he would have nailed it. No, yeah, but really, I I've liked Robert Pattinson in a lot of things I've seen him in, and <laughs> yeah, I agree. It's you know even a even a. a What's the opposite of a stop clock is right twice in a day? You know, sometimes a good clock can be wrong twice a day. I don't know. Is that, is that normal? <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah. And, and I mean, the character is outrageous, but I don't know. I mean, <laughs> we've got his we, – we get to meet three members of this family, right? This is Charles the Sixth of France, Charles the Mad. Yeah. He, he, had, he was an interesting guy. I mean, he had, he had glass delusion. He thought he was. He thought his skin was made of glass, and he used to wear heavy fabric and not move very much because he was afraid he would trip and break. Oh, yes. Yeah, so he he was he was properly mad, which is referenced in the in the film. And so you could say on the on the one hand, well, maybe you know, maybe it's it's hereditary or something, and his son is also a bit bonkers. But <laughs> but probably the character that's supposed to be the most incisive and intelligent is the king's daughter, the Dauphin's. Wait,
1: have I got that right? The Dauphin's sister, I guess? The king's daughter?
0: I'm getting confused all of a sudden. But anyway, of the same family. So point is that theory probably doesn't hold up that the whole family is a bit cuckoo. Because yeah, yeah. certainly Catherine doesn't seem to be.
1: True. Well, it was, it was an interesting take, I thought. And it, I don't know if we're going to get another pairing that's this much of a slam dunk as far as how well one carries over into the other. Because – I mean I certainly learned a lot about English history watching both of these films and you know how that can blur the line between history and mythology I guess cuz it seems like right. a, there's a lot of different takes on what what may or may not have happened but a- apparently uh, even even the character of Falstaff was technically technically kind of historically accurate although the name Falstaff was not his Oldcastle Oldcastle yes yeah. Sir John of. Oldcastle and Shakespeare yeah. was afraid of the wrath of this of of this kind of powerful family of old Castle, so he he renamed it to Falstaff so that he didn't draw the ire. Yeah, the, I I,
0: th- I believe they requested that he rename the character because the character was so buffoonish. So they so he he you know he didn't he didn't want to get canceled
1: <laughs> back then. Back then you could you could get a Twitter mob after you by just tons and tons of ravens swarming your house with letters. Ravens. Lots and lots of angry tweets. As if that's what
0: happened in Shakespeare's day. Yeah,
1: Shakespeare's day, they sent ravens. Homing ravens. Homing ravens. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Did did I mention i have only taken like one history class in my entire life? You didn't mention –
0: you did mention how much you learned about history during these (laughs) these movies. Well, after Agincourt, you know, this is seen to be the the big victory and the next – Scene of the film is – well, after Hal calls for the death of all the prisoners, we see him meeting King Charles VI, and King Charles VI is uh, willing to, to concede. And as part of that, Hal is to marry his daughter, Catherine. Yeah. And they get to have a scene together, and I wanted to ask you, Chris, what did you think of their scene—the couple little scenes they get together, where she sort of almost interrogates him about what he's done.
1: His character seems very thoughtful and pensive through a lot of the movie. He seems to be very deliberate about his actions up until the end, because, like you said, I didn't see him as a shoot-from-the-hip kind of guy up until Falstaff died, and maybe slightly before that, kind of a very kind of a gradual transition. But but towards the end, he he did kind of turn into. A bit more of your average king, perhaps. Not quite as stoic and noble as he once was. But I didn't really get the impression that he was reckless in a lot of his actions. And there's even a moment early on when they when they catch the French assassin. And the French assassin talks about how he was sent by the French king to kill him. And he asks him, I forget the wording he uses, but he uses it in such a way as to be like, who do you think sent you like like who was who was meant to have sent you so it's because even then he was kind of like okay this guy could say it was the king but was it the king could this guy be duped because he was he yeah. was very careful to not get sucked into a war over false pretenses which as we find out towards the end of the film is kind of exactly what ends up happening right. but d- during the little interrogation with her it, i guess it was kind of a reversal where after all this time I don't know. Like she, she the way she grills him on things, and the things that she grills him on were things that he was not necessarily reactionary about.
0: As a piece of acting, I liked it quite a bit. I thought they were both magnetic in their little in their little sparring. And there's something about Lily Rose Depp. She kind of has similar to Anya Taylor Joy. She's just got one of these faces that's sort of inherently cinematic.
1: Yeah, almost feels like an artistic beyond reality. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to be a creeper, and I don't mean this in a creepy way, but it almost feels like an artistic creation. Like they were, they were, they were designed and drawn, like to have a very distinct style to their face.
0: It's the sort of faces that Wells was always creating for characters, like he creates for Shallow and for himself, and mm-hmm. so on. In Chimes, she already has, and not not grotesque in any way. Uh, the opposite, yeah, but beautiful. Yeah, and just interesting. Mm-hmm. On that. I found the scene, frankly, a bit sort of tedious and strange because it feels like she's just kind of coming out of nowhere with all of this superiority. And I know that she's kind of meant thematically to put him in his place and she ignites his suspicions, Uh which he had, you know, perhaps put to bed. But I'm just not sure that I felt like it was pulling on a lot of threads that maybe the film hadn't really given me. And I don't know that they were in the screenplay or not she and he were both dealing with thematic elements and plot moments that, that hadn't really been earned for me watching the film.
1: Yeah, yeah. And that's that's really where a lot of my criticism comes from as well, is that she's, she's grilling him and kind of lecturing him on his reaction to things that weren't – they weren't really his reactions. Because he was not particularly offended by the ball and he had his doubts about the assassin – She's basically accusing him of being kind of a, a shoot-from-the-hip, knee-jerk reactionary king who just runs around starting wars because he feels like it because his feelings get so hurt. When until this moment, I didn't – it it seemed like that wasn't how his character was written. Yeah, the condescension kind of comes yeah. from nowhere a little bit. But yeah, I mean like the acting was good. and I thought
0: it was a little strange too. I mean she she's clearly meant to be an extremely incisive character and I think she does that well. You know, she has this haughty condescension that seems – earned in the way that she portrays herself, you know, and certainly she's throwing a bucket of water on the whole idea of, you know, what an accomplishment, but, um, you know, you killed a lot of people. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And but I I found it strange, too, when she talks, you know, she has her little quip where she lies to him saying that she doesn't speak English when, in fact, she speaks English quite Mm well. She says, oh, you must be an, you know, an interesting sort of person to contemplate marrying a woman that you know nothing about, which I thought was just an odd bit of... (laughs) I mean, he didn't make the rules. <laughs> he's doing that. He's doing that to conquer France. It's important for a king to establish legitimacy, and especially where it's already spurious. Because Henry the Fourth, and, and and she says that even in yeah. her in her speech, she she calls him out on the well, you know, the monarchy is all a sham anyway. Yeah, yeah. And and that's I mean, it is in any case, but especially in his in that his father usurped the the kingdom from the quote-unquote rightful king so he is the son of a usurper already yeah and so his situation could be called into question uh, within the minds of the people so marrying someone who is set to perhaps be the queen of france depending on how succession goes is clearly a move in uniting these kingdoms mm-hmm. and in continuing to prop up his legitimacy So I thought it was odd that she would – she's so astute, enlightened enough to know that she, her own class and her position is not special, but that it's a sham, which I just felt like that doesn't enter into it at all and doesn't seem consistent with some of the other things that she's saying. Yeah. Maybe that's a bit nitpicky.
1: Well, yeah. I almost wonder if – it kind of feels like she's – it's almost like she's looking on the past from the present day. It's a, it's a very It feels like it's a very modern perspective yes. on the events that have transpired over the course That's of the yeah. That's exactly film. what I felt. Yeah. Know. yeah. It, it seems unlikely that a character would hold – especially someone of royal blood would hold her sentiments at that time in history. It's yeah. interesting.
0: And I'm sure that we could be shown that there were some people who did. But it it's it struck an odd note for me. Let's cap the whole thing off I guess by the the final scene. At least it's the final scene that I remember. Which is after having how uh, after having his suspicions reignited by this conversation with Catherine goes to William, mm-hmm. his his chief justice, one of his key advisors, who who whose loyalty he has just praised a couple scenes earlier. The scene is interesting in, in several ways. You've got sort of a, a page boy or some kind of servant waiting on on William. And he's—I don't know exactly what he's doing. He's up. I don't know if he's getting like his his shoes done up or or something. He's on some kind of rickety stool. Yeah,
1: he's getting fitted for something.
0: And there are several moments where he starts to—he—he's he, seen as kind of a feeble character, and he keeps trying to to get down off this rickety stool. And Hal won't let him. He's keeping him up there to to interrogate him, mm-hmm. almost like you know he's he's on the the docket. Yeah, and 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 he starts questioning this story. And what I found is – I don't know what you thought about this, but I thought from a character who has exercised such – and maybe it's just because Sean Harris has that voice and that keen, intelligent face. Mm -hmm. But from a character who seems to have exhibited a lot of nuanced statecraft, it feels like astoundingly flimsy, the story (laughs) he tries to concoct and that he doesn't even have the most basic of lies to back up his – Really, you know, rather audacious claim yeah. that this – that he found an abdicating French assassin who was sent by the king. And it doesn't even hold up to just the mildest scrutiny. Yeah. Scrutiny. Th- like instantly it's a, oh, yeah, I don't – Yeah. And then they kind of – they kind of bat back and forth in this language that's – it's well written in a sense, but it just doesn't feel very genuine to me. He says, oh, well, you know, I think that I'm translating it to – Yeah. bow speak. Oh, well – you know, search your mind. It seems like that was a pretty big, pretty big instant. I think it would have made a mark. He goes, hmm, yeah. Let's see. You're right. It would have. hm um, mm, Uh. Oh, I found him in the street. Oh, you found him in the street. Oh, okay. And you know, well, how did he know it was you? Oh, um. Mm, oh, actually, no, I didn't find him in the street. Uh, someone, someone brought him to me. Yeah. You know, it's again. <laughs> it's you know, if if he was using. If he was using Robert Pattinson's accent, I would have felt like this was a sketch straight out of Monty Python and the Holy I'm Grail. You,
1: the parrot is dead. Yeah, um, it's it's funny. I was actually thinking about that scene that it was. It, it almost felt like an accidental homage to the scene in Chimes at Midnight when when Hal and his friend Rob Falstaff and the others yeah. and then interrogate him about you're this. you're right. The big battle that happened that got them robbed. He's like, oh yeah, we got attacked by by three guys. And then uh, uh let's see, and then these four guys. Wait, it's four? I thought it was three. Uh what did I say? Three? You know, it's kind of it's it's very yeah. and that scene is hilarious because Falstaff is oafish and braggadocious and very he's very bombastic and tries he's constantly lying to prop himself up, you know. So it makes sense. And then this you've yeah. got this Machiavellian manipulator who's kind of like yeah you like you would think that the moment he hires the assassin he would get together any of his co-conspirators and been like okay let's get our story straight so you we like we found you doing this thing and then you but no yeah it's like wait how did yeah. you find him uh he came to me in a dream no wait he, i came to him in his dream no nope, no nope, uh yeah watching this this yeah especially Sean Harris who has such gravitas to the way he delivers his lines yeah it was pretty it was pretty I, silly. i mean
0: I thought the scene picked up a little bit when you know when when the the farce is over and he's admitting what he did, you know. Then he at least gets to make a little bit of a, a you know his compelling argument about how this is this is the way peace is forged. Yeah, you know, you unite you unite your peoples under a common enemy, and then if you can if you can extract victory, then you've managed to bring some peace to your to your kingdom. Yeah, but. Yeah, the scene felt a little too too silly for me and then some of the themes felt a little bit grandiose and then occasionally on the nose. Then we get that, that sort of brutal and abrupt stabbing as he just takes care – you know, William sort of kneels at him and says – at his feet and says, haven't I given you what you wanted? And he just summarily kills him mm-hmm. as, a, as a young boy, a, a doe-eyed young boy just kind of sits there looking at him. And we see kind of the i guess the the completion of his of his transformation, and we get to hearken back and wonder about what happened a couple scenes earlier, where William told him, "I see that you've now become you've become one of England's great kings, in other words, you've learned to to kill prisoners and to wage war yeah you are now you are now a great We've man learned to
1: play the game." Yeah, I and I, and for that reason, I think the king is worthwhile. I don't think it's directionless or without identity. I think it. I think it knows what story it's telling, and I think the overwhelming majority of the actors serve that very well. It, it's 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 well made. I, a lot of the criticism I've seen of it is just that it doesn't bring enough new to the table, which I I think I guess that's a that's a valid complaint. I think most of the issues we've talked about don 't necessarily stem from it not being new enough or fresh enough more than just kind of some yeah. stumbles in execution i th- I think it was I think it's a worthwhile movie I think it 's worth watching i I think if you could only watch one, watch chimes, but if you can watch two, check out Chimes and then the King because the the great thing is it's not like uh it 's not like a Disney remake where it 's just a soulless retread, and uh it 's the same story without the magic. It, they are very different takes on the story. I mean, we, the mere fact that Falstaff isn't yeah. rejected and then and then dies saddened alone off screen the way he does in Chimes at Midnight, which is very tragic. In this, he he dies a hero's death after after being slightly neglected and then accepted and made into a general. So that's that in itself makes this a make makes this two takes on the characters worth worth checking out. I think. I one other thing I wanted to. To bring up real quick, because I know where this is, this is probably going to be a very special extra long episode of uh, kicking and streaming. But uh, there is, there was one other line going way back. I I feel like this makes a good, kind of a good concluding thought to my feelings on some things. Uh, Beatrice Wells, in your interview with her, she gave a really cool answer, I thought. You asked her, using the crux of the podcast to, kind of as the basis of the question, how would Orson have felt about about streaming and using the proxy of VHS yeah. tapes. And she she basically said he loved it. Like any new tech, he was super into it. Like he was just
0: – Yeah.
1: And to me, I mean, I, I think gatekeeping is bad in any art community, whether it's filmmaking, storytelling, anything like that. I, I don't like the idea of telling people, if you do this, you don't count. If you don't do this, you don't count. Um, it does make me think of – some directors I really love who have made some kind of disparaging comments about home theater viewing in general, which the two that come to mind are Chris Nolan and Quentin Tarantino, but both of whom especially are against digital, which I would not complain with them on that at all. I would not disagree that I that's for all the good George Lucas did for the world, I think getting people to do digital filmmaking with digital cameras was kind of a misstep. I do, I do like the using actual film. But- You get people who really don't want to kind of get near streaming and they sort of see it as a perversion of a a once sacred art form kind of. But then you get uh, the fact that Orson Welles was into it is exciting to me because he seemed like the kind of person who wouldn't necessarily soapbox or gatekeep or, or, or say, oh, that doesn't count as film. I mean, the mere fact that he lived between the two worlds of stage and screen, I think, shows that format was never really the biggest hurdle to overcome
0: yeah he was always a i think he was always a maverick he was an innovator yeah and you know his comments which have been misconstrued and have have made the news david fincher who's directing a a film about the making of citizen kane called the mink which which is coming out soon for netflix oh yeah he made some comments about the hubris of Orson Welles being part of his downfall and so on and so forth, and it made the rounds on, you know, film Twitter and so on. Mm. And one of the things that he brought up was an interview, which people brought up to Welles a few times, where he talked about his cinematographer on Citizen Kane, Greg Tolan.
3: And of course, again, I had a, a, a great advantage, not only in the real genius of my cameraman, but in the fact that he, like all great men, I think, are masters of a craft, told me right at the outset that there was nothing about camera work that I couldn't learn in half a day, that any intelligent person couldn't learn in half a day. And he was right. It's true an awful lot of things. Of it? all, you know, of every, other, you know, the, the great mystery that requires 20 years uh, doesn't exist in any field. And certainly not in the camera.
0: And people took that as very pretentious and dismissive and saying like, oh, yeah, you know, if you have a an expert cinematographer like Greg Tolan as your cinematographer, then, yeah, you can make Citizen Kane and and know everything you need. But I never took it that way. And Wells went on to say in, in interviews later in his life that, you know, that he'd been misunderstood. I took him to say that, you know, to kind of say what you're saying, that basically – gatekeepers be damned go out there and experiment yeah, and yeah. really what you need to know is a few things about about lighting and the rest of it comes from experience mm-hmm. from playing around with the format and trying new things and i think even things like cg and digital and streaming i can imagine wells playing with all of those things i mean he didn't embrace you know he he only dabbled in color mm-hmm. He liked to hyperbolically state that he didn't think a good performance had ever been captured on color. <laughs> but, you know, he he did make some color films and Beatrice said that he was considering making his King, King Lear, his, you know, swan song for TV even. Oh, yeah, you yeah. Know, so he certainly wasn't – he certainly wasn't above, you know, uh, trying new things and it would have been remarkable to see what he would have done, you know, with the, some of the tools that we have now.
1: yeah. Uh yeah that, that that was an incredibly insightful interview with Beatrice. I think you asked some great questions and she she is just such a delightful human being to listen to. So I I was really glad to hear her thoughts. Yeah this this was honestly in in multiple ways was probably for me at least the most educational episode we've done so far. I feel like I've I feel like I've grown a bit. I feel like I'm a little bit older, <laughs> a little bit wiser.
0: Yeah, well, I was yeah, it was a thrill to to talk to her and to examine you know, Orson. I mean, we get to talk with we're not we're not going to belittle <laughs> David Michaud, but you know, we get to talk about great geniuses, Shakespeare and Orson Welles, mm-hmm. and you know, a modern take on that. Um, so it's it's been a it's been a really interesting episode highlighting a story that's perhaps famous in plays but not necessarily in movies. And I just love as I as I said to Beatrice calling some attention to Chimes at Midnight because I think I mean we haven't even touched a a tithe of the notes that I have and the interview clips that I've saved and the points that I'd written down to talk about about that film because it's I mean this is one of those films that you could go through frame by frame as Ebert used to do in some lectures and just talk about the composition of, you know, each frame. It's the work of someone who you can tell really did chase his mistress film
1: yeah <laughs> as it were well i think it's real it's really unfortunate that yeah like we're 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 definitely getting this is probably going to be our longest episode yet i think rather than trying to guess who this film would, would be for i would just encourage everyone to try and find it and watch it uh, obviously it's i mean it is shakespeare it is black and white if you can get past the stigma of either of those if you need to do a quick little Shakespeare for Dummies recap of of Henry the Henry the Fifth and Henry the Fourth and stuff like that, I I did a bit of that to help it make more sense to me. But if you have even a passing interest in Shakespeare, and if you like to see well made movies, I, I I cannot recommend Chimes at Midnight enough. It is very 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 good.
0: This movie will guide you through. And if you don't understand, you know, every line on your first viewing, I don't think. You're going to feel that you've had a bad experience
1: yeah if anything, just look at it as like really well done and exciting uh uh you know beat poetry or jam <laughs> it's uh yeah it's just a delight to listen to dialogue's good even even when even when some of it would go over my head, just the prose is just very very pleasing but yeah this was this was good good guest episode i think first the first of many
0: yeah and tell you, uh, tell you what chris <laughs> goodbye. Parting is such sweet sorrow.
1: <laughs> yeah, probably not that much sorrow. <laughs> yeah, 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 You little ingrate. it <laughs> is nobler to uh, assail the slings and arrows of the of of what? Well, <laughs> Listen, um, as the bard says. Uh, 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 see, see you around. Uh, don't, don't go. Don't go streaming. K- uh, don't go kicking that stream uh, Rome- romeo